Last Christmas we reviewed Arnold And the very next day we gave Burden away This year, to save me from tears We're gonna review something special Die Hard, it's Die Hard, we're gonna review Die Hard Do you just dive straight in? I assume we're on a timer. What is the out? Have we got a hard out? Uh, I can't remember what it said now. Let me look at the diary. Just, Basically just, so, just, so just I can keep an eye on it. I mean, the last one, yesterday's one was like two hours and 15 minutes, so... The, yesterday's one was what, sorry? Uh, last, sorry, the last one we did, Saturday's one, whatever it was, was two hours and 15 minutes, so... Yeah, ideally, ideally about two hours, if not less. Great, that's fine. Yeah, cool. I think I have less to say, weirdly, on this one. Maybe I don't. We'll find yeah, out. oh yeah, how yeah, how, yeah, how long is it going to take us to suck Die Hard's dick? <laughs> mm. Well, let's find out. <clears throat> yep. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rewind Reviews. I'm definitely leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would. The second I said it, I was like, oh, that's going in. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Welcome to Rewind Reviews, a podcast where occasionally um, we uh, throw away any potential YouTube profits by swearing in the first minute and uh, or using <laughs> using some of the language that wouldn't be appropriate. Hello to the not sponsors we definitely don't have on the YouTube video this week because we opened with sucking diehards dick as a phrase. Um, yes, hey, well- hey, I didn't say it for the podcast. That's It's your choice to edit it in. I don't know how you're going to do it now, because we've got a little musical ditty, and we've got that. <laughs> He's I'll just going to keep, but, um, trying, keep I, I, starting the uh, credits. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, I think what's, you know, it's it, the, the funniest thing about this is this is going to go up like Christmas Day. So it's a time of peace and love amongst, you know, amongst all humanity or whatever, and just that we're opening with that. Love it. Um, yeah, how so many we'll, do you think are listening on Christmas Day, though? <laughs> yeah, almost none. Almost none. Um, if, if you are listening right, to this if, on Christmas Day, God bless you. If you're listening to this on Christmas Day, right, comment on the YouTube or comment in the Discord and say, I'm listening to Die Hard on Christmas Day. And if we see that it was genuinely posted on Christmas Day, if you send us your address, we'll send you a mug or a T-shirt with certain parameters of, you know, postage costs. But, I am yeah. putting that is all on Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell! That's a, 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 what. What mug or t-shirt are we sending them, Chris? I'll work that out if anyone actually listens on Christmas Day. Yeah, but the thing is, somebody might start this, hear that, not listen to the rest of it, and just post. Oh, you've oh, you've opened point. yourself then, up. You've opened yourself it, up. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I take it back because then other people, other people that might not actually be listening, might see that. Yeah, and be exactly. like, that's clearly a thing. So I take it back. I uh, I changed my mind. I'm scrooging it. Yeah, but but let us know still, and it'll be lovely. <laughs> but also, like, what t-shirt or mug were you going to send them? Are you going to like stick our logo on that. something? Like, I don't. What do you? <laughs> you <laughs> could, yeah, you we could, don't. You could ha- make... We don't have merch. <laughs> yes, but it's it's the it's fucking 2021. I think yeah, 2021. Dan, like, you can get t-shirts made. You can get mugs made. You can. You can. It's fine. I have faith in well, that. Well, it's not fine. Well, it's, well, it's extra fine I'm... now because you've already taken it back. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've subtracted the offer, so it's all good. 
Oh, anyway, Die Hard Dan, what was your? Oh, I chose it, so I guess I should launch. So, well, first of all, I mean, this isn't about my history, but I, I realised watching this, like I would say, if someone was to say, "What's your favourite film?" I would say Good Burger, the Keenan and Kel movie, for emotional reasons, or I would say Back to the Future. But even sure. those two films don't make me grin and literally get giddy with excitement. And hold my attention in quite the way Die Hard does. Like, mm. multiple points. And I realised, I do it every time we watch Die Hard. Multiple points, I turn to Jess like, it's Die Hard! <laughs> like, so, despite this incredible love for it, um, which obviously we'll talk about more, I got into Die Hard really late. So I think it was like... So, well, my first experience of watching Die Hard was round a friend's house uh, at the end of a party that she had. We all went into the living room and watched Die Hard. But she had a friend there that liked The Office. So I spent the entirety of the film trying to talk and flirt and failing to do so with, with her. So I didn't really pay any attention to Die Hard. I was all about the the, the flirt the flirt game you're a nightmare um, to watch a film with i guess well it's one of those if sort i was of trying to die hard and you were trying i'd mate i'd be I, well i was trying to think about this because i've definitely got mates that would have been like shut the fuck up so i think maybe we were writing notes back and forth on a phone like genuinely i th- i have a vague memory of it being done that way um yeah i also remember like adding her on facebook afterwards and like never speaking to her again um so yeah i definitely wasn't doing a good job of my flirty note banter um and then so that was my first experience and didn't pay too much attention to the film and then i ronnie was like who friend of the podcast ronnie was like it's madness that you've never really seen die hard we're gonna watch die hard and i'm like yeah sure so we did a film day And I think the last film we watched that day, so I think I'm pretty sure we did Lion King, Inception, and then (laughs) Die Hard. Fucking Um, what a triple header. Mate, even worse when you find out one of our one of our dear friends who was there. We're we're watching Lion King and literally there's a moment you could feel the room change as the three of us that were in the room with him went whilst watching Lion King went Oh, fucking hell, his dad died four weeks ago. Um, like, it just completely not the film to watch, The Lion King. Um, and, and I voiced it, and I went, sorry, mate, this is probably an inappropriate movie to watch, isn't it? And he went, I was just thinking that, but it's all good. He's a wonderful man. Um, he could see that it was a genuine mistake. Um, but we're not here to talk about Lion King. Um, so then Die Hard plays, and I'm like, I'm just blown away by it. And I'm going, I'm sat there going, this is really fucking good. And everyone's like, yeah, like, that's why Die Hard's a very popular film. Like, what are you surprised that Die Hard is good? Like, you know that, like, it's kind of its own institution. Like, what are you doing? Like, of course you should be watching Die Hard. Of course it's amazing. Um, and instantly was like, well, we're watching this every year um, at Christmas. Watched it again that Christmas. And then ever since have watched it every year at Christmas. Um, yeah. that's me, that's me, that's my history with Die Hard. What about you, Daniel? Um, well, first of all, I mean, that I just, 
I still can't. Well, there's two things I can't get over: the flirting through Die Hard thing. Um, I don't know. I I, have, I feel like I have questions, but also so many that none of them are actually verbalizing. Um, just <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do you want to tell you something that just like makes your mind melt so much that you just literally can't even process? Um, watch Die Hard, mate. I, uh... <laughs> it was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Look, I was young. Look, uh, this I'm like. I'm like. I've got to say, I'm like. Die Hard's for 16, life, not just for Christmas, no, Chris. Girl, girls will come and go. <laughs> You know what? I must have been because in order to have been single, it must have been while we were at uni. So I reckon maybe first year of uni. Wow. So yeah, I was too, I was old enough to know better. Definitely, you were I must old have been like eighteen, nineteen. Um, yeah. And then uh, the, 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 I'm sorry. I I still. Uh, I mean, all right. The the mistake with your friend's recent history, uh, notwithstanding, because that's obviously yeah, we did a separate. Feel, we, we you did know. feel awful. Can I just say? Because yeah, yeah. I'm very conscious that we've started a we've started a Christmas podcast talking about my friend's dad's death and sucking diehard's dick. Um, my my friend is the kind of person that that like we literally laughed about the madness of that last week. So I'm not yeah, yeah, being oh, no, insensitive sure. there. He yeah. But, yes. but what I'm um, saying is, I'm was, putting that aside, I still can't quite get quite get over the the, the decision of those three films. So I just want to I, I I want I want to understand the logic of this. So, Lion King, Inception, yeah. and Die yeah. Hard. Can you yeah, explain the then... thinking between that triple header? Yes, it classic films that the people in the room hadn't seen. So, ev- like multiple people hadn't seen, or there was like one so, chosen for each person. No, there was. I think essentially one chosen for each person. Um, right. So and your one and your one was Die Hard. Uh, yeah, well, actually, Inception as well at that point. I hadn't seen that either. Um, oh, but I'd seen The Lion King. Um, so, yeah, it was basically... It was classics that the people in the group hadn't seen. Mm. I think we, it was. I think there was meant to be another. I think it was then meant to be... In fact, possibly... Because we did Alien and Aliens as part of these sort of film days. And I don't know if actually Alien was also done that day. Or The Thing... Or kiss, 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 bang, bang was done separately. I, I know that. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Um, but yeah, we basically. I'm pretty sure the three we watched that day were uh, the Lion King, Inception, and um, well, there you go. And um, Die Hard. Let me so, let me uh, double check. Put it on Facebook. Let me see if I can <laughs> double check. Just so strange. Anyway, um, yeah, because I I just can't imagine watching that. What, what a tonal dissonance! Like what. a... Like I understand the logic, I guess now, but like even then, it's like I don't, I don't understand like how anyone would think that but would be good. But when it's a day of watching movies, in a way, it's not the worst thing to juggle it up in terms of genre, tone, aesthetics, cinematography. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. I just feel like those movies definitely, definitely don't complement each other. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's fine. Um, so die hard, but also, um, but, but also also defending the decision. I think how much does something need to complement each other when they're all fundamentally excellent films? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, if we're if we're just going like, are they good? Yeah, yeah, of course. Do you know what I mean? If they're poor quality, I think complementing is a bigger issue. Yeah, that's fair. Let's see if I can confirm. Yeah, so, fair. what's your history with Die Hard? What's that, sir? So what's your history with Die Hard? Uh, yeah, so Die Hard for me, it, it's one of those films that I can't remember the first time I saw it because it, it, it has always been. Like, in the beginning, there was Die Hard. I have always loved Die Hard from being very young. Like, I remember being 
God, I couldn't have been any older than six or seven and watching that film. <laughs> um, mm. It has just always been a part of my life. And I think, it, weirdly, um, it came to me through... I think Die Hard 3's release. Let me quickly check the date on that. Um, this is one of those movies that I kind of went back to because the... Yeah, so Die Hard with a Vengeance was 95. So I would have been... Seven. Seven or eight. Okay. So they... I, I, I suspect what happened was they put Die Hard on TV around the release of Die Hard 3. Um, mm-hmm. I obviously didn't go to the cinema to watch Die Hard 3. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd struggled to convince my parents to take me to Jurassic Park, and in the end, my auntie had to take me because they, they thought it might be too scary. <laughs> Instead, my core aunt took me and wasn't telling them that's what she was doing. Uh, all my cousins had seen it, and I hadn't, so my aunt, me and my aunt went as a separate trip to see Jurassic Park. But that definitely wasn't happening for a Die Hard film, which I'm pretty sure are like <laughs> much higher rated it- than Jurassic Park was. It really makes me laugh that, like, your parents had such sort of strict, like, rules and, like, such strict guidance for you in terms of what you watched. And every other member of your family, your nan, your aunt, didn't give a fuck. (laughs) Yeah, but not just that, but, like, my parents also, like, checked out. Like, it's almost like it gave me... Because how many of the stories... Of, uh, on the, this this podcast of how we first came to a film that we love from our childhood is me watching a film deeply inappropriately for me and even sort of seeking it out because like I feel like their attempt to make it taboo made them more interesting to me like you know what I mean like yeah yeah or them like not paying attention like Robocop's a great example of them just not knowing what the film was <laughs> but putting a TV yeah. in my bedroom at a very young age was a, was a terrible idea because it just meant I saw everything anyway <laughs> So they didn't. It didn't stop me. And by making them seem like I shouldn't be watching them, they ended up. They ended up uh, very much, you know, pushing me to watch films like that. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I seem to recall Die Hard would have been was screened sometime around the release of Die Hard: Avengers on like ITV or something. In the in, well, I was living in Ireland at the time, but ITV was 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 on Channel Five in in Ireland because of RTE One and Two. Um, so yeah, I watched it there, and I, I, I think, but it's like, it, but even that, I'm not certain of. I just feel like Die Hard has always been a part of my film diet, and and uh, you know, over the years, I've watched it more times than I pretty. It's on, it's up there for like if we were talking about the movies we've reviewed on this podcast and how many times we've seen them, Die Hard is way up there on this list for me in terms of like I know all the lines in and out, like I know each scene to scene. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy. That's going. Oh, this next bit's great. <laughs> this next bit's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's the it's the same for me, and I think it will it, even more so because, like I say, we genuinely now watch it every year. So, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, huge, huge fan. Um, have been all my life. I mean, there's no, the, the thing is one of those things where, as well, looking at the timing, it's also when. Me sort of getting into Die Hard seems to if you if you time it if it was around Die Hard three as I suspect it was, but again not certain but around that time, that's also around the time I was getting into Friends I think no when was Friends? What year was Friends? Uh, Friends started in nineteen ninety four. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. There, that exactly lines up then. Okay. So I'm not going crazy because I remember 
feeling validation from the multiple jokes in later seasons of Friends about Die Hard and about the guys loving Die Hard. I remember getting that reference and understanding that it's this great film and being really pleased with myself. (laughs) Because I will say, I watched Friends very young. I was watching Friends like in its second and third season, I'm pretty sure, and very distinctly remember not getting half the jokes <laughs> or feeling like I wasn't getting a lot of the references because of how much of it was like American stuff. But I remember being very pleased that Die Hard, I was like, I get that. I was I was Captain America, basically. I get that reference. Um, yeah, and as, as, as Chris said, it's become a staple uh, most years. I watch it at Christmas. There was a weird wilderness period where I didn't get to watch it very often because um, Nadia had never seen it and had dismissed it as a dumb shooty movie. Um, and she watched it later in life, got into it, and now we pretty much watch it every year because she loves it. Um, I believe she's still not seen any of the sequels, so we're going to try and correct that this year. Yes, um, so she is she on board for that? What's that, sir? Because we talked about that briefly uh, last time. Is she on board for watching all? all yeah, four she's sequels? she's a little dubious because she knows they they don't they don't end up going great, and she and she also I think I've biased her a little bit against Die Hard Two because I've always been a bit like eh Die Hard Two eh. And I think she knows I feel that way. Um, but I really want her to see Die Hard with a Vengeance because I love that movie. I absolutely Yeah, love no, that I'd, movie. I'd like it. You, like I say, I did it last year. You know, as we've discussed before, I I don't go in as in on Die Hard 2 as you. I think it's I think it's good. Um, it's just the fifth is uh, the fifth is the bad one. Um, I think there's there's merit in every other film. Um, yeah, I think the I only just other say... one that's like a it's pretty close to being a classic though is the third because the second one has the issue of it's just the first one again. We've seen this. You can watch this and it's better, and it's called Die Hard One. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's very little to gain from Die Hard Two. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I, but you know, we're not here to discuss Die Hard Two, but I um. Yeah, I don't know. I I still really get a a real die hard like the friends thing out of it. Um, I do I do agree. I think as well, I, a, a wasn't the joke in friends it, it, that objective... they were going to watch Die Hard two, and then the video shop accidentally gave them two copies yeah. of Die Hard one, so they just watched Die Hard one again. Because Joey goes, Joey goes. Well, let's watch Die Hard again, and then it's Die Hard two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, well, that the, joke really uh, resonates like... with me now because now I think yeah, it is. It's basically it's the same movie. As a, as a film, I think objectively the the third is is stronger, yes, than two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I I do really like two I think still. The, the um, can I just say like... I found? Go on. Huh? No, no. I, was just I, I found a. You go. <laughs> I was just gonna say the third one's interesting because it, it one of the reasons I'm convinced that a really truly good sequel doesn't have to be a carbon copy of the original and is quite can be quite free to completely change what it's doing but still feel like a sequel to the original is because Die Hard with a Vengeance is so good. That's the reason I believe that to be true. You know, we talked about this during the Matrix films when we did them. We talked about how like the idea of going away from what the first one did, oh, we've already made the Matrix, so let's do you know, the movie that undercuts a lot of the ideas in the Matrix on purpose, like a subversive film that sort of tries to do something different and then let's make a gritty war movie that's a matrix movie those like that idea they, those ideas in principle are absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with saying let's do something different now you know and but i think die hard is one of the reasons i believe that so truly because die hard of the vengeance yeah, well, I... is compared to die hard 2 is like living proof that it's actually better to do something different with your third movie than it is to 
just do the first one again. Yeah, and something like something like Alien to Aliens and Terminator Perfect. to Judgment exactly. Day, you know, are the same thing. Yeah, Going to say, I found uh, so it was it was October two thousand sixteen, and so my friend and I between us haven't seen a bunch of classic films. So today Ronnie is making us watch Lion King, Inception, Alien, and Die Hard. So far, we are just disappointed we aren't watching Lion King in sing along mode. Circle of Life, people. Uh, and then I, th- 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 that status generated enough comments to make me think you probably commented on it as well. Um, but obviously you're no longer on Facebook, so I can't see that. Um, mm. But yeah, a lot of people questioning how we hadn't seen those films. There is no evidence that Aliens was watched, Alien, sorry, was watched that day because there's no picture of it. And yet there is there is tweets such as Lion King down, what a film, and guys dot dot dot. Turns out Die Hard is incredible. Um. So yeah, was that I, the order uh, you did it? And then it was you went from Lion King to Die Hard. Is that the is that the route? No, no. It went Lion King, Inception, and then the next film I reference is Die Hard, which makes me think. Which makes me think we only watched the three and watched Alien at a later point. Right. Um. But yeah, there you go. There you go. Which so, means um, which means I then watched it that Christmas, and then I'm pretty sure watched it every year since. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, can't blame you. It's uh, no, it's it's no. I mean, it's a, it's a stunning film, and 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 as we'll get to, I, I think a little bit of a fluke. Um, looking at some of the trivia, I've kind of been forced to reckon with an idea I had, and we talked about this last week. You know, we said this is basically a perfect film in a lot of ways. Like, it's a really tight script. It really gets to the action straight away. It's got simple but clever ideas at its core that don't need to be properly. Like, they don't need thorough exploration. And the reason that's clever is that gives you lots of time to do, you know, tension building, action scenes, without it feeling like it's taking away from character work or whatever. You know, they give it a very simple, uh, very easy to latch onto conceit. Um, and a very mm. simple, you know, uh, sort of uh, obstacles for the for the hero to overcome. But as a result, that means they can actually, like, really... It doesn't. It doesn't need to be this masterful thing. Like in terms of like, it doesn't need to spend all this time like intricately developing like twists and turns and deep character arcs. Um, so, sorry, I, I'm, if I sound a bit distracted, it's because like, as far as I was aware, there was no one in the flat across from ours. Like no one living in it. Um, and it, I've just had loads of doors going. So if that's someone about to move in, hopefully not while we're uh, recording. Because no, there's no trucks outside. Oh well, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> weird distraction. Um, that really threw me off. I can't remember what I was saying. Doesn't matter. Die Hard's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, you were saying about how you thought it was a perfect film, but actually the triv shows that. Oh yes, it, the, tri- it the went triv through. demonstrates some yeah. of this was was done on the fly. Oh, quite a lot of it was done on the quite fly. Quite a lot, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you looked through the trip before you, 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 you started recording, Chris, but yeah, it turns out, we'll come to it later, but quite large chunks uh, of this movie were sort of developed as it was being shot. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't look at, um, I didn't look at IMDB's trip, but I did watch the episode of the movies that made us about Die Hard and a lot of it's covered. Oh, I, w- I wish I'd had time to do that. I wanted to, but I didn't get a chance. Maybe you can fill in some of the gaps because some of the trivia is a bit like, vague about one where its information is coming from and some of it I, seems like partially opinion pieces but i, I know that the I script hope, wasn't complete when they started shooting like there's a bunch of stuff so yeah i hope that the truth says 
Frank Sinatra got first refusal at the Correct. part without any context as to why. <laughs> no, it, no, it, it does. I, I have got the I've got the reason for that. I understand what happened with that. Um, <laughs> we'll come to it anyway. So, um, but yeah, so but it's interesting because I've had to kind of reckon with my thoughts on this film because I've always thought this was this like meticulously brilliant, tightly scripted thing because you know it's it's a nothing wasted sort of movie. You know, every line, every story beat pays off in some way. And um, I don't know if this movie was necessarily sort of rescued in the edit, maybe. Um, But the fact this movie is as cohesive as it is, is actually kind of a fucking fluky miracle, maybe. Um, uh, We'll see as we talk about it. But let's just talk about it as it is, out of the context of that. Um, Again, the the simplicity of of the premise of this movie is its its strength, I think. Um, would Would you agree with that? The what? Sorry, say that again. This is sorry, the simplicity. This we're having a we're, we're having an awkward one today, Chris. I've got I'm getting distracted. <laughs> You're not hearing each other properly. This is it's all right, Dan. It's Christmas. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no one's gonna listen anyway. That door's going again. I'm so confused. It's really loud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a look. I can't, right, go on. I can't, I can't figure out. Oh, he's looking. Are you still on mic? <laughs> yeah, I'm still on mic. I'm just I'm just looking through the okay. window. See if I can figure out what's going down. Dad's like one of those, you know, stereotypical middle-aged women peering out his curtains. Well, no, it's not. We've got blinds, so I'm literally like someone from a shit movie that's put their fingers between two blinds to like <laughs> widen them to peer through. <laughs> that's so sad. Um, I can't see. I, can, I can't see what's going on. I have no idea. I'm gonna maybe I'll shut the door to you so it's not as loud and distracting. Anyway, yeah. So um, I think the simplicity of the film is its strength. Because I think a lot of what works about it works about it because it's such a nice, simple concept in both its plot and its character arcs. I mean, strictly speaking, all that really John McClane learns in this movie is that, you know, apologize while you can because, you know, these things don't, you know, you might not get another chance to. Like, you know, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's a pretty straight, it's a pretty simple, you know, being stubborn is all well and good, but you could die tomorrow. So... Yeah, I think I think it's it's that core conceit being very clear um, and easy to follow, and it's just the. I think I mean obviously we'd recommend it. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's out of the out of the out of the debate. I assume. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent. Like, sorry, yeah. I had to walk so... away from the mic for a second because there was some that, that, like like the sort of banging that you would associate with somebody trying to shoulder down a door. Like shoulder barge down a door, so I've just gone investigating. There's now no one there. I'm very concerned at what's happening. Yeah, God. Um, well, I'll talk for a bit if you wanna if you wanna go and have a look. Um, so I think obviously we recommend it for those. And if you haven't seen Die Hard, Jesus, go watch it now and then come back to this. Yeah. Because uh, obviously from this point on, spoilers. But if you need a refresher, um, as Dan said, essentially it's a story of a man learning that um, it, it, you know it, you should never miss the opportunity to to say sorry um and you know it's it basically that comes from him uh flying to attend his uh wife's christmas party um in i can't remember where la la yeah it's in la la yeah it's yeah so he's a new york he's a new york cop she she lives in la now um and she goes to her building which is this kind of huge tower building structure and then seemingly terrorists uh, led by Alan Rickman as hands, uh, attack the building, ha- hold them hostages, um, and uh, try and uh, get through a safe to to rob them. 
um, and escape with millions and millions in in bonds. Uh, John McClane, uh, the cop, uh, is not with the party when they take them, so he manages to run off and scupper their plans in a number of days. Getting involved uh, is his policeman friend Powell on the radio, uh, and you know other other characters uh, such as the FBI and the limo driver, etc., get involved as well. Um, and I think it's it's genius is is its simplicity, but also as we were talking, sort of hinting at earlier, the way everything is like interconnected, the the balance of tone as well when you're looking at it critically is so beautiful. There's so many little moments like um, one of the robbers waiting to um, shoot someone, noticing that, that there's chocolate um, by them and like reaching into the chocolate stand to steal a bit of chocolate. One of the FBI guys hurting themselves on a shrub as they're running through it. Yeah, and these I, moments I've made could... notes of all these too. I, I don't think I've ever realised how many of those weird just bizarrely human moments. It's almost like mistakes being intentionally left in the movie. I made notes of yeah. a few because I was just like quite surprised that there were so many of them. Which was the big thing when the new writer got um, got put on. Um, the big His big thing was the director wanted him to add more comedy. Right, um, which is, yeah, that's, it. that's kind of in my trivia as well because it talks about how he didn't want to make another dark, you know action movie or horror like sort of yeah. because he i think he just he just done predator i think um mm. so it, yeah he, he wanted to do something different and that's kind of but it's all so small but like really it's weird how much it adds to it like when when when, the, when johnson and johnson are in the helicopter the one that got me johnson and johnson in the helicopter the two fbi agents that show up later this hostage situation and one of them says like it's just like saigon and he's like you know i was in high school you ass <laughs> like something like that i can't remember what it is but it's this really insane exchange that does not at all need to be in the movie but it does add something there's just something really weirdly human about it <laughs> i don't know it's a uh, um yeah, yeah it's hard it to explain just, it's it's so layered, and it's like the helicopter is a good example because those guys obviously blow up, and so it's it's kind of like, and it you know and maybe we'll talk about it early to avoid saying sentences like this all the time, but when you hear about the scripting process, what's so amazing is there wasn't the time to stop and think, and little things like when they're preparing in the helicopter to shoot them them saying well you know if we lose some hostages we lose some hostages and being really cavalier and dickish about it making you not feel as kind of making it when they then blow up and die as an audience member you're a little bit like well they were dickheads like they were pricks it feels so deliberate there's so many things in this film the bare foot of it all the fact that the photo is slammed down but then comes back later when Rickman picks it up Miss Janeiro being set up there's so much the, set yeah, that up makes this feel like the payoff. most like like most meticulously planned thing like even the christmas miracle stuff so the thing where you know the, the, they set up at the beginning of the movie the, the tech guy that's breaking into the safe for alan rickman's hans gruber says you know there are seven of these like sort of uh, fail safes or locks doors things that are in our way i can get you through six of them for the seventh one uh, you know I, there's nothing i can do you're gonna have to help for a miracle basically and they reference the christmas miracle multiple times 
And it, the reveal later in the movie, again, we're, we're going straight into spoilers, is that, uh, again, if you haven't seen Die Hard, go see Die Hard. We're absolutely recommending you see Die Hard. Um, is that, you know, Alan Rickman knows, uh, sorry, Hans Gruber knows exactly what the FBI playbook is and he knows they're going to follow it to the letter. And once they realize it's a hostage situation, which is very much his intent, they're going to cut the power to the whole block, which when they do that, will actually release the final safeguard stopping them from getting into the safe. And that's set up early in the movie and repeated multiple times so that when it happens you know immediately what's happening without them having to explain it in that moment so you get the satisfaction of it happening without them needing to also be like but oh, it seems that just because they've cut off the power it's not something that's like set up and paid off within a sentence of each other are you listening matrix three um it's it's stuff that's set up in earlier scenes and then pays off there it's it's, it's it, stuff like that makes you think this is the most meticulously planned movie of all time <laughs> Or maybe not all it's time, like, but like, every, like really high up there. Things like one of the, you know, one of the stereotypically kind of, um, you know, the 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 crew basically, you know, in a movie like this, the crew are always slightly expendable. But in a bad version of this film, they're just the they're just the criminal crew. In this film, they've gone well. All right, what if one of the guys he kills early on is the brother? of the guy that then survives until the end. Like, and it just adds so much more engagement and weight to what is happening because, you know, we understand why he's so determined to get John McClane and therefore fear for John, John McClane a little more. I don't know how many times we've watched this movie and there were moments where watching it the other day, we were going, ooh, ow, at his pain, or like when he's in a situation, it's like, fucking hell, how's he going to get out of this? Well, we know how. We've seen the movie countless times. But it works because they've done really clever things to add weight to all of it. Mm. Yeah, but even again, the it's... Cleverness of... Go on. Sorry, go on. Well, even the cleverness of... And this was an accident. So this, again, is an example of how... And, and the movie still... Even if it was an accident how they got there, the movie and its creators still deserve all the credit in the world for noticing and, and, and executing. But it's things like... So that scene where... I don't know if this is in your trivia. But the scene where Hans and Bruce meet and Hans does his yes. fake accent comes from the fact that someone in the catering, when they were having catering one day, someone asked Alan if he could do an American accent and he did that. And it made the writer go, oh, wait a second, he's only he's only spoke to Hans in radio. This is an excuse to have these two meet. Because at that point, they were basically wrestling with how can they meet without trying to kill each other right away? Because that is what would happen in this situation. Mm-hmm. But then it became, well, what if they meet and you... and you know, he's not sure whether it's hands or not. And it's just this fucking really brilliant scene where there's shitloads of tensions because finally the villain and the hero are meeting for the first time. But it's just, it's every, every decision in this movie feels really fucking clever. Um, and like I say, whether by accident or whether they, they pieced it together as they went along, still deserve credit for making those clever decisions and putting them together. Yeah, um, and, it and really it's hard is. to... It's hard to know how many or how much is design and how much is accident when you know how this movie was kind of made as it was as it written as it was made. You know, so like you mentioned earlier, the picture introducing the picture early on. You know, the picture of the family mm. and having it put face down that can't be an accident. But then right. you hear that they discovered 
Alan Rickman could do an American accent and create that entire scene, which is one of the best scenes in the movie, on the fly, then you go, well, okay, maybe all of it was an accident. Like, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the episode uh, of the films that made us might, uh, the films that might, you know, might have cleared some of that up. Because the, the, the trivia, of, the, I always start, for anyone who doesn't know, I always start with the IMDb trivia and then basically work backwards from that. So I use that as like the baseline for interesting things people think they know about the movie and then start researching to actually find out if any of it is true. Um, sometimes a lot of it is true. Sometimes big swaths of it aren't. And I have to do a lot of my own research. It varies movie to movie. Um, so maybe the movies that made us think actually explicitly says, you know, what is and what isn't, you know. Um, true. An accident and what is and what isn't was in you know in the script from day one. I don't know, but like that picture well, thing, for example, it, do they explicitly say that's an accident or is that just that wasn't the script? No, only really the only really the voice stuff. And there's something, um, but at that point I was making a cup of tea. Something to do with the ambulance and when it appears. Um, yeah, was, I've got that. That's that in my trivia. That is in my trivia. But like it, the the main impression they give is that it was pretty much all action and all the sort of humor uh, was then was then added sort of as they went. I, um, I I do think a big part of that, though, if I'm being completely honest, is, like, what makes this film work, though? Because a lot of the... So a lot of the action is really good when it comes to sort of, like, having very easily established practical goals that occur throughout the action scene that feel very like natural like and very I'm trying to think of like the the, the action flows in a way that very few movies there's like very clear situational stakes that shift on a dime and it almost feels like the the writer wrote action scene here with this outcome (laughs) because then on set they were like, okay, what's physically in this room? Oh, we got this big fucking weird table. All right, he can go under it, and the other guy's trying to shoot through it. Like you, you know, it, a lot of it feels like it was set up and done spontaneously in the moment, reacting to the physical. Because this this film's action so much revolves around the location, the building, the physical layout of things that you just have to wonder, like, was this stuff all designed? when they got to the sets and they got to the building. The building, I think, is only used for the exterior, if I'm not mistaken. The interior is all sets, I assume. Um, you might have, They might have shown that if they on movies that made us, I don't know. Um, uh, well, they talked about... They, no, I think they got, they got like four floors of the building because they talked oh, about the when building? they had okay. to... They they weren't allowed to. There was a law firm, so the rest of the building was occupied. Yeah, the, the so building was, was actually a, one of was was actually partially Fox's headquarters, wasn't it? Yeah. So there was a law firm that was like, "Please stop shooting bullets like until after five p.m." Because um, basically, they they set up and do all these big action shots, and like there was one law firm in particular that was like, "What the fuck are you doing? Like, we're trying to work." Um, so yeah, I think yeah. Because how do you explain it that? Inside. It's one thing to say, "Oh, there's some construction going on on the floor below us." You can explain that to a client. Imagine Nick trying to explain, you know, hearing Bruce Willis yell "Yippee ki motherfucker!" and then like a machine gun fire. <laughs> yeah, and look, we'll we'll never know what was added when. So I think all we can do is sort of uh, talk about the yeah. the final product. Um, yeah, that's fair. And and it really is. It, 
it, and I think also what, what, what it's amazing. Thoughts on the situational action of it all, because I because I was I was curious to whether you felt that way too. Like the the scenes all sort of when they're when the action's happening, it's all so like flows into itself very nicely. The circumstances and his goals, no one's ever yelling. He needs to get to this thing because he needs to do that. You always understand what it is he's trying to achieve in an action scene um, through context. Um, you know, so it's it's just really interesting the way they do that because it, it feels so much more natural than so many other action films. And this is particularly on my mind in the wake of the horrendous Matrix 3 fight for Zion sequence where it's just a lot of shooting that's aimless and people yelling this... what they're trying to do but not really making it clear. Like, this movie is the opposite of that. <laughs> it's always There's clear so what much... the hero was trying to achieve. Therefore, you always feel the stakes. And I think that's, again, like how how amazing the the script is and the thinking through uh, by accidental design because like you never have to they never they always show you they never tell you and what's even more amazing mm-hmm. about that is because a lot of films obviously do you know they show don't tell a lot of great films what's even more incredible about that in this film there would be an embedded excuse and reason to do the tell which is the relationship between him and pal down on the street Take, for example, the scene where he goes, the scene where the they're about to attack the FBI. So what he does is sets, lets some dynamite fall down to the basement to where they are and explode so that it, it stops everything in its tracks, basically. We, a bad version of this movie, has Bruce Willis on the radio going... They're not listening, so I guess I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this dynamite and I'm going to plunge it down. Like that's right. a bad version of this movie, and it would have been so easy for them to do it. But it's just like these fucking shit hot creators just going, "Well, no. If we see him stab the dynamite and put the computer on it and then drop it, we'll know what he's doing. So let's just have him do it." Like, right? Um, yeah, I, think, I, I will I say that. Right. You can... Funny enough, you pick you pick the one scene that did leave Nadia going like, "Well, wait a minute." Who is he trying to... What's he exactly trying to achieve here? Is he trying to uh, kill the two guys with the rocket launchers? Because that is what he—that is what happens, it seems. Um, but yeah, I must admit, that one did actually, funnily enough, confuse Nadia slightly because she went... Because she's seen this multiple times now and she was just like, well, wait a minute. Like, is, was, he, was, the, was the bomb intended to scare off the police? Was it intended to kill Gruber's men to save them from, you know, to stop them from shooting rockets at the, the police forces? Like, his goal in that scene is actually one of the least clear of the movie, which is interesting because it's the one you've decided, which I, I agree with you. I think it's very clear. Um, but, it's, it, but it wasn't for the, Nadia, so that maybe suggests maybe that one isn't quite the, as clean. There is in general, if if uh, if we are to nitpick, and we should we we should nitpick, but I think I think we nitpicking doesn't mean that it's not a perfect movie. I still think it's a perfect movie, as we predicted, with some nitpicks. Um, have you got your building... uh, have you got your your bus ticket bought, Chris? I've got my bus ticket. Where are we going, Dan? Nitpick corner. <laughs> Way. Um, Choo choo. The building. All the bu- the building logistics. And what's like a janitor behind the scenes area? What's a lift shaft? What's a lift shaft that you can for some reason easily access? Um, what's a vent? What's not a vent? How big the vents are? There's some there's some building logistics stuff that maybe is simply just eighties buildings and actually, you know, I've never I've never gone behind the scenes of a big building like that, so maybe it's fine. But I could see someone easily watching and going 
wait, so where is he? And how's he able to do that? Because, you know, where's he jumping to and from here? Um, I could see that being, and, you know, that's not necessarily, I think part of the confusion in that scene is potentially he's able to essentially seemingly open a door and look right down to the basement and he knows they're definitely in the basement and that reaches right. the basement. And so there's there's a general sort of, what are the logistics of this building? Well, yeah, and they're how also, is they're definitely not to... in the basement because those two guys are shooting rocket launchers downward into the car park. So how yeah. he knew where the bomb was going to blow to take those guys out is definitely... <laughs> yeah, Maybe. and it could be, you know, big-ass explosion is just going to pause everything anyway. But I think there's definitely a sense of, like... Because also, when he he goes into, like, the janitorial bit because he says hello to the topless women photos... And then, so he's down that big sort of shaft, but he's got a jump and there's air vents. And yeah, I think there's some, the building logistics, I think, could easily confuse someone. Yeah. I think they kind of cover themselves early on with that the, the most of the building is still under construction or several floors are still yeah, under construction. Because yep. then you get these big open spaces or like vents that he can get access to and you go, well, he's getting access to that because there should be fake walls up there that aren't up yet. Or, you know, there should be yeah, grates on some of those vents that, you know, they, but they, they, that's a lot of finishing touch. You know, they've not put the grate on the vent yet because the vent's not finished. Like the work isn't finished. So, you know, they're, they're, they, they definitely uh, give themselves a wiggle room with that one line um but i think the nitpicks are still valid um the other one that's from that exact same scene though that you just referenced the, the one with the bomb um i just want to point out this to the, to the writers more detonators does not make bigger boom just want to make this clear he has yeah. a, bl- a brick of c4 and he puts two detonators in it now i think that's right because i think it's like a positive and negative charge to complete a circuit which sends charge through the c4 which blows it up and then John McClane goes, fuck it, and puts more detonators in, like, that's going to make it explode more. That's not how it works. That's just not how that's it fair. works. It's a fair nitpick. Well, I think, I don't know enough about detonators, but I, that sounds like a fair nitpick to me. Yeah, I just, well, I just, C4 is where the boom is coming from. The detonator is what's sparking said boom, yes? Yeah. I think that makes... We can all agree that makes sense, yes? So, yeah. if, you, he'd have th- if he'd have gone, fuck it, and then, you know, stuck another brick of C4 attached to it, or whatever, then then that's that makes sense. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm like, what? Yeah. Another one I have, and this is, a, this is like, you know, nitpicky of nitpicks. When he first goes into the building, right? There's a security guy, yeah, at the desk. Who a little bit later after the scene gets shot. And I kind of think, the same way that you were sort of saying with Johnson and Johnson being blown up, and you're like, well, they were dicks. I kind of feel like this guy deserves it too. Um, what a dick. <laughs> right. You you know, you know that there's a party going on upstairs and that it's the only the only thing left in the they're the only people left in the building. Because you say that line. <laughs> 30 seconds later, right? Yeah, I said this to Jess, yeah. John McClane comes into the building and goes, I'm here to see Holly McClane. The guy's just like, yeah, just type the name in there and it'll point you to which floor she's on. He types the name in. It shows the floor. And then he looks up at the guy and the guy's like, oh yeah, floor 30, they're the only people left in the building. Why the fuck didn't you just send him straight there then, you absolute prick? Were you just, just, did, I said this to Danny and she was just like, yeah, maybe he just wanted to play with the toys. Like, he just wanted to show him the computer system. I'm like, I'm sorry, that guy's a dick. 
Well, it's amazing. It's a. It's amazing how that actually holds up more in a modern context. Because I think if someone was watching this now, they'd assume that was a sign-in system, and it's and and that's why he had to do it. But actually, it's not a sign-in system. It's high technology for the day saying where she's based. But I, yeah, I literally turned to Jess and was like, "Why didn't he just tell her? Tell him?" Like, <laughs> yeah, if they're the only <laughs> people left in the worse. building, he doesn't need to use the fucking high-tech system. I know what they're doing. They're I... trying to set up the fact that the building is full of you know, high-tech controls and stuff, because obviously a lot of yeah, this movie yeah, is predicated on the building being very modern and full of technology that makes doors shut and lock from a distance. I understand yeah. what they're setting up in that scene. Maybe don't maybe don't have the guy phrase it that way. Maybe make it a sign-in system. You know, not a system yeah, to but, tell yeah, you but, where uh, they are. But as you yourself said, you think he's a dick, but then it makes you feel less bad about him dying. <laughs> yeah. So what a dick! If that's what they were looking to achieve, just, just send I, them um, there. I've, I've thought of another amazing uh, thing that, and this one, this one really struck me on this watch because things like the photo and stuff like that, and the feet, and the you know mm-hmm. all of that stuff, I've noticed before. The one that I hadn't noticed until this viewing was because some of this stuff as well isn't even just practical; it's the symbolism, the fact that like at the beginning in the scene with Ellis the watch symbolizes like them taking Holly away from him and Mm -hmm. her sort of life without him and all of this stuff and her, how he thinks she's become a bit, you know, a bit fancy or whatever um, is then the thing that by taking it off and letting it drop saves the day. Like all the symbolism around that is just fucking amazing. And like, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Do you, Think there are, this movie is a movie full of insane details, like really do small you, attention to detail stuff that you just go fucking hell, wow. Do you think one of the things, and I, I, I in terms of like putting pins in subjects to come back to, I want to come back to the Holly character, but mm-hmm. do you think that one of the reasons this film feels so triumphant and makes you be like die hard is because every villain gets a form of comeuppance and every hero gets their moment to shine. Powell gets to shoot the guy at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Algernon, is it? Is that his name? The uh, limo Argyle. driver. Argyle, um, Argyle. The limo driver gets yep. to... Arg- the limo driver. Yes, <laughs> <gets to laughs> I clearly can't pronounce his name. Gets to gets to ram the limo um, into the van with, yep. the, with the tech guy in. Uh, Holly gets to punch the uh, punch the reporter. The reporter mm-hmm. gets punched. Hans and the gang die. Like you know, everyone gets their comeuppance. Apart from, I suppose we don't see the tech guy arrested, but assume he he got arrested. Um, yeah, and, and do you I, think I, that? And other than being yelled at by John McClane, the, the Dwayne, the the shitty police chief guy, doesn't really get any comeuppance. No, but he sort of gets a bit of redemption in the fact that he's he's like I've got a I, something doesn't feel right about this. He clearly begins to lean more towards Powell and anti the FBI. Towards yeah, the yeah, end. yeah. So he gets he I think he totes the line between hero and villain because that sort of that goes back and forth. Um, well, not back yeah. and forth. He sort of has an arc with that, with how he feels about the situation, I think. Yeah, it, um, it, it all feels so tight, though, because even b- b- just bringing up Argyle... Like, in t- so in terms of your point, I 100% agree with you. I think you're right. A big part of what makes this movie triumphant is, like, everyone gets the moment to win. But again, the, even yeah. the choice to keep Argyle throughout the movie, and I know there's a... there's a, I know, Again, 
an happy accident. There's a reason they had to beef up the roles of people like Argyle and Powell. Um, uh, you know, Bruce Willis was still making a TV show at the time. Is <laughs> the is the sad thing, and he wasn't as free, you know, as they originally thought. So they had to make some changes on the fly. But the choice to have Argyle in the movie serve the purpose of introducing us to McLean and his situation very quickly. And it's worth noting this movie. Holy hell! Like. They, straight into the action. The terrorists show up like 17 minutes in. Like, that's impressive. But Argyle has got so many functions in the movie. So he initially he serves as a uh, as our introduction to McLean because, and McLean's situation because obviously, you know, we need to learn about what McLean is doing there, what his situation is. And Argyle is, is, he used to be a cabbie, he's asking a bunch of questions and we learn a bunch about it. Then Argyle gets there and is like, I'm going to wait for you, which is one, you learn a lot about Argyle. You go, oh, what a nice guy. But then he's comic relief throughout a big chunk of the movie because like the shit going on around him and he's not noticing. My favorite being the the when they when Powell gets the body thrown on the car and it backs up and it's being like shot at by machine guns. Then it just cuts into the the limo and out the back window you can see the car going by and the bullets flying and he's just oblivious. So he's playing comic relief then through the middle of the movie and then at the end of the movie he gets to play a really important part in stopping one of the villains who theoretically you might have like who who you know is wasn't one of the um the, the the physical threat villains but was more like the tech guy as chris pointed out you know his ending can't be being shot by bruce willis he's not an aggressive character so you need to find an ending for him or the fucking joy of joys we've got argyle sat right there in a limo not doing anything so argyle can knock him out it's genius it, like it again it's so tight and everything just everything pays off into something and it just feels like nothing is wasted and it's all so incredibly put together and again i just it's a it's it's, it's both a miracle and a work of absolute brilliance that even small details or small characters characters like argyle that in another movie would be completely forgotten you know or not hang around at all are made use of in such interesting ways and I, and it's just it's yeah so absolutely a big chunk of what the fuck yeah this movie is the way they use the uh, like they make sure all the characters have something to do um because it means you constantly get you know character arcs with payoffs or character beats with payoffs it's constant this movie is set up payoff set up payoff set up and there's so many of them that by the end of the movie, it's just like, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, that came together, that came together, that came together, yes. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. uh, uh, and, and both, like on, say, both yeah. in a, I'm satisfied with this narrative sort of way, but also in a, yes for these characters sort of way. Goodies win, baddies lose, you know. Yeah, and, and everything, like, everyone gets, like, what they deserve. Like you say, it's really clever that the tech guy doesn't get shot violently by Bruce Willis because he's not shot anyone violently. Like he's an ass, he's a criminal. So he gets, he gets captured. Maybe right. again, nitpick corner. Maybe we need to see him getting arrested in the background. That would be good. Um, Cause even like, but what they also do, which is really clever is they show us the stakes. Now Ellis also a dick. So you're sort of a bit like, yeah, when he gets shot, cause it's his own fault. But also you kind of need someone we know to get shot to set up the stakes to, you know, make it clear that, you know, there is a real danger here. And obviously it's the same with um, they use the owner of the company um, in the same way. Make it very clear that he actually is a nice guy. And mm. by killing him probably within the first 25 minutes, I assume, or around that, if it's 17 minutes and the terrorists are already there, 
um, killing him quickly really does uh, set those set those stakes, and everything is, yeah, just really intricate. I I also think the and there's this really funny bit with like on the on the movies um, that made us where they talk about this. Um, the character of Holly, especially for the time, is really well written, strong, mm-hmm. independent, knows her stuff. But there's this great bit where she, the actress who played her, goes, um, "She wasn't your typical damsel in dis- in distress." And then there's a beat, and she goes, "Well, except at the end, maybe." And it cuts to you know her with the gun to her face, getting captured and stuff. Yeah, but well, that's that's that is, that's that like is it for the eighties, like you know. But it's, like, it's that's something that, that was the, the, very the unusual. Yeah, because the difference is that thing at the end, Dam's in distress with the gun against her face. That is what happens to the character. That is not the character. Whereas in other movies at the time, the damsel in distress was the entire character that that female character was given. Whereas she has independence, has strength, has kind of cunning, you know, telling him that her name is Miss Gennaro to try and take him off the off the scent when it comes to John, etc. Like, all of these things, she's a, she's a really great character, um, and that's really rare for the time, but unfortunately still kind of rare now. Um, I think Holly, all the characters in this film are written really well, Um but Holly in particular, I think, is is written and performed very well. Yeah. Oh, my God. They're still banging. One second. Sorry. One sec. Nope. He's, he's there. Neighbor Dan at the window. No, I'll go to the door. Oh, he's gone outside. I assume he's not on mic now, but you think he's coming back, people. They've left. The, they've all got that door open for the flat across. I don't know if they're doing work in it or cleaning it or what, but they keep slamming the door. I'm gonna go tell them to shut the fuck up in a minute and stop slamming the door because it's really fucking. What strange. were the voices saying? Because oh it seems God, like there were the voices hell? there. Again. Maybe they're testing the door. I was hoping to catch. I'm trying to catch the people doing it. They keep vanishing. Whatever they're doing, they're going back and forth really quickly, and I keep missing them. I don't know if they're like cleaning or doing work in that flat, but they keep going and going, and every time they do it, they slam the door. It's really loud. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. I might. Well, we'll probably cut that bit out. I imagine, or we can just have you being like trying to narrate it without knowing what's going on. Well, that's because I didn't. You you sort of said you were going as you were going. You didn't sort of say right, make a point and talk well, over me. Well, it's this. because so I was I trying. Was to, like... I was trying to be quick to catch them because like. <laughs> I keep missing them to say, can you stop slamming this door? <laughs> um, so I was desperately trying to catch them. Um, anyway. I, um, I assume you agree that Holly was written. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I wanted to talk, talk a little bit about that because I think that this is sort of like a, a great trend in, that hap- well, started to happen. We saw signs of it. You know, uh, Terminator, which is what, 95, 94, you know, mm. gave us a a damsel in distress turned strong lead, you know? Um, so this yeah. was like a, uh, a trend, you know? And I think really, if we trace it right back, I think it starts with alien, right? Like what was that? 19, yeah. 1970, 79, 80 around that time. Like so, that. Y- you know, Holly Gennaro is like a, is a, is a, is a part of a, a, a or one piece in a slow movement towards giving us more, interesting characters and something that 
sadly, Hollywood to this day hasn't 100% learned that lesson. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, films is oh, well. I guess I guess the, if we're looking back, like it, it's interesting to see how it's shifted. Like you, you go back to Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films, and Kirsten Dunst exists to be captured and scream, which is a real shame. Um, whereas you look at the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man films, and you know Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy is getting involved and helping. She helps develop the way to stop the lizard in the first Spider-Man movie. Sorry, first Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movie spoilers. Um, uh, so, you know, it's... it's Holly is a really good example of Hollywood underst- when Hollywood understands correctly that <laughs> women don't have to just be damsels. They can be smart and capable yeah, yeah. and and the way this movie writes her is to be the most capable person in the room you know she's the she is the only one smart enough to really know what's going on and she's brilliantly and very cleverly contrasted against ellis who's just a complete fucking idiot you know he he i sort of the great thing about ellis is ellis is one of those characters that's written in a way where you sort of you know where he's coming from because well, he's sort of saying like why are we trying to stop these guys they want money or demands or whatever stopping them is only going to drive them to potentially kill us <laughs> and he's kind of right yeah. but his approach is absolutely wrong <laughs> you know well his approach um, is the is the is the the arrogance and cockiness of a of a salesman isn't it or you know stereotypical right exactly he's such a sleazy character he's so written that like even though he might ultimately have a point he you know she stands strong behind principles and she's very intelligent and she's smart about how she deals with each situation. Um, you know, the scene where she confronts hands about like just the quality that the, of the conditions for the, for the hostages and says, you know, it's either going to get messy out there or you're going to start having to take us to the bathroom soon. Or we've got a pregnant lady that, you know, needs to needs a more comfortable place to sit rather than the floor, you know, mm. it's, it, 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 you know, that scene is an, is a great example of, that character being confident but not to the point of foolishness unlike ellis so contrasting those two against each other um in those sequences one tires more to the hostages so she's also got a, she's she's not just a really good character in her own right she's also got a really good plot function which she is she is our link to the hostages up there you know without that mm-hmm. they would just be these nameless faceless faceless people that are mentioned occasionally but also it's it's just a great way to make her seem like a smart and capable person on her own and a match for McLean on a di- in a in a different way maybe you know Holly's probably not you know going down the side of a building on a on a <laughs> on a hose pipe but she's got her own way of being able to problem solve and get away out of situations. And you, you know, she's, a, she, you understand that she's a match for him very quickly. Um, and, and, and played, played brilliantly uh, by Bonnie Bedella, like Bedelia, Bedelia, Bedelia. I'll go with Bedelia. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia. He does, does just does a, an absolutely fantastic job as, in the role. I would, my only criticism, I think at all of how any of the Holly and slash Holly and, um, John stuff is handled is I will say that when they have their argument before it kicks off when they first arrive at the party uh, the fight they have is very vague and a little generic and I wish it was something more specific that they were fighting about because it's just so blah it's like oh they're having difficulties they're not on the same page I, th- I, Why? I think that it's, it's I didn't not... mind that 
I didn't mind that so much because to me it felt very real in the sense that it felt like a couple that had been arguing about this shit for a year and were going and it, it felt actually right. you you wouldn't go well when i they managed to get that feeling without feeling like they're having to give the audience a lot of information which and you, you never do, do the, and you never do the dishes i can't do the dishes yeah. i'm catching cops yeah yeah okay it, i see what you're saying yeah no one would go you know and they do they do do a bit of recap it's very clear he didn't really want her to move it was a great opportunity she yeah yeah they, move, they, they cover cetera, kind of what the what the crux but of their recent sort of it, distances the, for sure the pettiness feels like because you almost and what i love as well what they do with mclean's character you feel you know because they're getting on so well and there's a lot of like heat and chemistry between them um and then he goes i see not enough you don't miss me enough to take my name or something and you just get this real sense of like oh why are you bringing that up and he even says like afterwards like oh great great job john like he he realizes himself he was a bit of a dick um so I see what you're saying, but to me, it ju- it just felt like people that was going round in circles, um, and mm. it felt a bit vague because they'd been having this argument for years. Um, yeah, and actually, yeah. The, the, you, you you've pretty you've convinced me to be honest with you because I, I, now I think about it, I sort of go as well. Yeah, it's it's it, it's one of those things where the things that they're not gelling with, it doesn't. It, 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 the, the, there might be multiple triggers. But those difficulties they're having are because of their personality. So it's not going to come up in a specific, tangible way at this point because it's been triggered by multiple choices and things the other character has done. They're having a mm. their disagreement is beyond petty practicalities and is is coming down to you know their choice, their life choices, you know, and how they approach things. Yeah. Um. And and you're right, actually, that stuff wouldn't have doesn't have a doesn't have a place in an argument that devolves into and you slept with your secretary or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, not that that would be the reason, yeah. but do you know what I mean? Like it's, but then I suppose then you have the question of going like, well, if they're that at loggerheads personally, like they're actually just not gelling at all. Then the ending of the movie where she's just suddenly with him because he saved the day doesn't really quite. Well, gel. I think, I, I think that comes from, cause I do, I do agree. I do think that is also a, a valid nitpick. I think they kind of like you, what you were saying, where you were like, well, this line sort of explains about the building. I think that notion of by having him after that fight go, oh, great, great job, John, like, you, you idiot, why did you bring that up? And having him later on say, she's heard me say I love you, but she's never heard me say I'm sorry, which I think is what the line is it kind of feels like it's not so much that their problems are suddenly resolved. It's that John's realized there's some shit he just needs to get over. And this happening, this, you know, their life being in danger, her being in danger has made him realize that actually sometimes you've got to just say sorry and, and get over your shit. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like that. I like that what he realises is that, like, he was being stubborn for stubborn sake and that he he can't just, you know, stand there like a rock and be in the way. He needs to be able to be willing to adjust and stuff. But she never hears that. She, they never have that conversation. She doesn't overhear what he says on the radio to Powell. So the ending still sort of you go, like, did they have that conversation? Wouldn't it might have been nice to see it? Or even... yeah. 
show her because you know because everything he's saying to Powell is going over the radio right presumably everyone all the terrorists are monitoring it right you you assume because obviously he might give away yeah, location yeah, yeah. or information so have her in the vicinity of hands or someone with a radio and have her hear that and see that her eyes are a bit glassy or something I don't know something to indicate she's like taking in what he's saying that would have been perfect that would have like yeah, yeah, like elevated and it, it's, yeah. it's a simple change but it would make it would make the ending way more satisfying for me and again you're right it's a nitpick in the end if they're together you know he's learned his lesson you know that you know why but just that confirmation of her understanding that about him and learning that about him and, would be really important not you, just for him but for her as a character because otherwise she just looks like weak willed that she's just like oh he saved the day i'll bend to his will now <laughs> which isn't what's well, happening you, obviously and not what they're implying but it's what you might take away as a message if you don't get to get a moment of seeing her learn that he's changed do you know what i mean yeah because there is the moment before the fight where basically she says i've missed you and and, and it's clear that they do still love each other, but it, they just keep descending into this madness because of right. stubbornness, etc. But I, so that that is there, but it is certainly not as clean as mm-hmm. if she found a radio or was in the vicinity of hands and and heard that speech. Which I, yeah, I think that I think out of everything we've discussed, if I was going to change that, change one thing, I'd add that. I'd add a shot of her hearing that. Um, yeah, for sure. It yeah, wouldn't definitely. take a lot, and it would probably add a lot. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Everything else we've discussed is like tr- a true nitpick in the sense of, like, I don't think it changes the movie much, even if they fix that. Like, it won't change the movie much if they make it. They take out the line where John's like "fuck it" and puts more detonators in, or if they have that guy in the opening scene actually say, "Oh, they're upstairs," <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead of going to that computer mm. to make you look like a dick. Like those are genuine nitpicks in that fixing them makes very little impact on the movie i think the closest thing i have to a criticism that i think stands because my other one was obviously that their argument felt a bit sort of like generic and thingy but i think you've, you've turned me around on that but i think the the, the the criticism that still stands is that i do think in the end it would be nice to, to understand why holly's position has changed i know why john's position has changed we've gone on that journey it's it's, yeah. it's there's a missing piece if you're going to set her up as so strong and uh, you know, very like sort of uh, like level-headed, but also you know she's. I just don't see how like I I I could imagine that that character like him giving her a hug and her being like well, this doesn't change anything. What are you talking about? Like you know what I mean? Without having known the journey he's been on, I could almost see that character rebuffing him at the end yeah. rather than embracing. Yeah, him. but well, she. I mean, she did nearly die. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It probably she she's we've established she loves him and misses him, and then she nearly dies. I don't think it's quite beyond the realm that she's gone. Oh, give me a hug. <laughs> like, yeah, but they don't they but, don't yeah, leave. They're, they're leaving an embrace. Though they leave together. Like it's it's they're together. Like that's yeah, the implication very... of the end of the movie. It's not just that they've had a hug. Um, if it was just that, yes. then you go, oh, yeah, it's that they've just gotten out of a scary situation and they know yeah. each other and obviously they're fun of each other. But it's yeah, if they come out together, he's got his arm around her. They get into the limo together. They're going away to get like that that's them going because obviously this movie is not made with a sequel in mind because it was made you know pre the modern era of everything needing to be a franchise so this that was the ending that was going to be the happily ever after you know that's the intention anyway yeah. um so yeah, yeah i just I, like what i'm saying is for that would absolutely elevate the movie for me 
yeah, what I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying is, agree. More context would elevate it, make it cleaner. But I think it does still work as it is because we know she does love right. him, and they've gone through this horrific. Yeah, job. they they do enough let's, to just about get away with it. But I think it could be a lot better. I think that's is that let's, fair summary. I, yeah. I, I, I want to talk quickly about the. Oh, no, well, you were going to move us on to something. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, you go. I just wanted to ask you about the choice to have them not be terrorists, but bank robbers. I think that was really clever. And also, giving Hans that amazing seat, that line where he's pretending to be a terrorist and he's naming all of his brothers in arms he wants different governments in the world to release. <laughs> he names he names a group called like Asian Dawn who have got some people incarcerated somewhere. And the, the Carl character looks at him and mouths like, Asian Dawn? And he like pulls the radio away from his mouth and goes, I read about them in Time magazine. <laughs> It's one, a brilliant joke, number one. But number two, I think that's such a clever notion. The notion that these guys are actually, they're just the simplest thing ever. They're just here to rob a bank, uh, essentially. Not, it's not a bank, but like to rob a bunch of money, I should say. But they know that in the climate, they can make it look like a terrorist incident. And I think that's... Yeah, it's- genius um and makes yes, them much it, more it almost makes them more interesting as as, as criminals <laughs> yeah it's it's fantastic and again it's it's you know happy accidents basically the director was like i don't want to make another terrorist movie make them robbers it's more fun um which is like amazing that it then becomes this genius thing yeah. um and even even the fact that because their escape plan is genius as well make it look like They've all been blown up, and actually, they're never they're never on the roof. And then, by the time they've realised they've gone, like I think it's um it's a really smart decision. And again, it makes it links to this idea of because one thing that struck me watching it, and it links perfectly to that point, is there's so many archetypes and stereotypes in this film, but the writing is so sharp and the performances are so great that you just get away with it. Yep. You fucking hate that reporter. You want to smack him. So yep. when he's smacked, you love it. And then, like, on paper, it, d- hearing it described, Hans feels like one of the most kind of obvious villains possible. He's a bank robber. That's just, you know what I mean? That's that's like you say, that's, that's the sum of it. But it's written and played so beautifully mm-hmm. that, it be- that he becomes one of the most characteristic and best you know he it wouldn't surprise me to see hans gruber on list of like best villains of all time there's not the complex backstory like there is for he who must not be named in harry potter there's not the clear goal and you kind of understand their logic not be named instead of voldemort yeah man (laughs) you can't say voldemort there's there's not um there's not the clear sense of don't agree but can understand where he's coming from that you get with thanos like literally he's a bank robber (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but that's I think that's actually has a weird reverse effect because they're abusing the notion of a moral villain which is this idea of a villain that has an ideology that from their perspective is morally correct whether right or wrong often good villains are the ones that you sort of go I don't agree with what they're doing but like i totally understand where they're coming from so like um killmonger in like black panther is, is a really good recent example yeah. of this you, you know you, that character is not incorrect he's going about it the wrong way but his his point is valid um the almost the idea of almost making hands more despicable by making him go 
I'm going to laugh in the face of the people with ideologies. Ideologies? No, I just want to make money. <laughs> like, that almost makes him more yeah. villainous. It's like they've taken advantage of the idea of villains with more backstory and purpose and, and, and reasoning. And they've t- flipped it on its head. Again, I suspect, as, as we've just discovered, kind of almost by accident, and created a villain that's almost more detestable because he doesn't even believe in any of it. He doesn't have an ideology. He's just a selfish dude. That's very yeah, weirdly compelling. That's, <laughs> that's so hard to get right. Obviously, the Dark yeah. Knight did it with some men just want to watch the world burn. But I can't think of many examples where literally just a villain for the sake of being a villain actually works. Like, right. and that you that you get away with it. There's way more examples of that of that not working than working. Um, and I think again, it's a it's a great job on behalf of the script, and you know, obviously, Alan Rickman's incredible performance because he plays it so theatrically. And it was his first it was his first film, and I think getting a getting a theatre actor to play the part, I think, really benefits because there's um, because in theatre villains are you know theatrical, um, and I think that. Yeah, there's just something about the performance that just really works. Mm. So you, you sorry before I, before I brought that up, um, you were you were there was something you wanted to talk about as well, and I derailed. Well, I didn't. One thing I wanted to rewatch uh, before this, but didn't, um, is the uh, is the Screen Junkies video on this exact topic. Um, it it would be remiss, Dan, especially you know, <laughs> given given the nature of this episode being a Christmas special, it would be remiss not to get into the debate a little bit. Yeah, oh yeah, um, that's that's the, that was my last thing to talk about before we got through the other notes. Was is it? A christmas movie or not well, well do you have anything before that point then uh yeah i just i want to talk about like the iconography of this movie and how it's become mm. the most iconic thing ever uh, like it's so much of the it's like every four or five minutes something happens in this movie that's like completely iconic now you know whether it's ho 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 now i have a machine gun or now i have a machine gun ho ho um or you know yippee ki motherfucker welcome to the party pal welcome to the um, party pal yeah yeah um Hey, come come down to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. You know that whole thing, like all of that. Um, that was the best Bruce Willis impression you're ever going to get out of me. So that's that's the standard we're at. Um, you know all of that stuff, and then the visuals of like him leaping off the building with the with the water hose tied around him. Um, you know the, the just the image of Bruce Willis in this movie in the in the vest that's progressively dirtier as it goes. You know. Uh, no shit lady you think i'm trying to order a pizza like you know like all of that like it's just one of my favorite lines in the whole movie um like i I, is it accident is it just that the movie is so good lots of moments from it become iconic can you design iconography like how much of this how much of that is intent and how much of it is just it's a good movie so lots of it is remembered because i do wonder about that because it's there are plenty of movies that i think are absolutely fucking wonderful and and lots of people do but they're not iconic like they don't have multiple moments that are absolutely iconic top to bottom do you know what i mean this why does you know like Groundhog Day is widely widely accepted as being a great movie. It's on a lot of top ten lists. People love it. There's so few things from that that are like iconic, though. Yeah, and certainly compared to this, and something like Back to the Future, which also you know, eighty eight miles per hour, where right. we're going, we don't need roads. Like, right, 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 you know, exactly. All of that sort so of stuff. what what's the difference um, between a movie that becomes 
that when lots of moments from it become iconic on a movie that's absolutely widely acknowledged as being great, perfect, brilliant, but just doesn't quite hit in that way. I don't, I don't understand what the difference is. Maybe it's like, and I don't know. If, like, this is just off the top of my head, so this I may change my mind on this. But maybe it's like it's harder for like a big blockbuster movies, like you know, Back to the Future and Die Hard are more blockbuster movies than Groundhog Day. Not just in performance, but in you know, set pieces, action, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, adventure, you know, Groundhog Day is essentially a, a character piece. Um, maybe blockbuster movies it takes more for them to become remembered and and loved because sometimes they can just be dismissed especially nowadays where there's so many bad blockbuster movies mm-hmm. um so when one is when one is amazing uh, blockbuster movies are inherently more accessible as well so when one lands like it really fucking lands in in public consciousness and i think you know repeatability as well like it's kind of like what we were talking about with it's a wonderful life die hard's got you know how 30 odd years of people 33 whatever years of people rewatching remembering so those things sort of just slowly over that time start to creep into public conscious maybe you definitely can't plan for it though you absolutely can't plan for yeah it. so you can't um, capture that in a bottle can you no no um, but there is you are right there is so many like you do just watch it and like i would love to witness someone that hadn't you know like i had briefly with my very specific mcfly song last week of like oh that's where that comes from somebody right. watching die hard with somebody that had never seen it it must be like oh fuck right okay well welcome to the part that's where okay fine oh yippee ki but yep heard that like do you know what i mean yeah yeah so another couple of i, I think you, yeah that's exactly how i feel about it. i think you're right it's like you can't capture that in a bowl so it's it, but it's just incredible how much of it is is that and i also would enjoy seeing somebody watch through this and realize how much of this stuff is is seeped into popular culture that i think that that image of him in the vent with with the lighter is also another one like that image alone like it feels like you know because obviously there was that whole meme a few years ago people made it as a christmas decoration all mm. that stuff um that's yeah yeah good. definitely um so a couple of other things I want to talk about, uh, if that's okay, um, before we get into the question of is it a Christmas beyond, I'm going to blast through these very quickly. Um, just some some stray observations, stray observations with Dan. Um, how times have changed, gun on the plane and smoking in an airport. I don't care if you're a cop yeah. or not, you ain't taking a gun on a plane. <laughs> not Lucy the fucking holster inside of your fucking thing anyway, that's for sure. Um so yeah, let's uh, let's put that on. Um, yeah. It strikes me that this may have been the role the role Bruce Willis was born to play, uh, an asshole. Um, <laughs> people didn't know it at the time. He was kind of known as a nice guy because he'd done a lot of sitcoms, but uh, recent years have pretty much shown Bruce Willis to be quite a <laughs> um, uh, quite not as dissimilar from his character as you may think. <laughs> Well, he was known. Apparently, people laughed when they saw the trailer because he was well, yeah, basically. Yeah, known that's, for in the comedy. Tri- that's in the trivia. Really yeah, people did. They laughed because he was kind of known as the comedy guy, um, for sure. Um, another little nitpick, Chris, that I forgot to mention. This was all planned very meticulously. I think the movie shows that from the terrorist side, from from Hans Gruber's side, right? All these mm. details down to knowing the FBI would cut off the power. Yet when they first get in. And get all the hostages together. They don't know what the boss looks like. 
The guy owns this company. You couldn't have looked up a picture? You didn't bother to just, like, crack open a company directory? I know you don't have necessarily, like, full internet access, but, you know, it's a public company. He's probably... He's very rich. There's, there's There'll be pictures of him out there. You couldn't... Well, they found a picture up, of Hans. Couldn't look him up before you showed, before you showed up? <laughs> the news found a picture of Hans, so, yeah. <laughs> um, also, uh, <laughs> on that, the... Um, what I love is I'd quite like to see the the twenty minute version of this movie where because presumably if the guy if the boss had given them the code the codes then this movie would be over within half an hour. Yeah, if 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 John McCain had been upstairs with the rest of the guests when they'd come in and he'd just given them the codes, this movie would have been called um, Die, and it would have been what just all rubbery. of the hostages getting rounded up. Hands going off, getting into the safe, loading it into the back of that, uh, the, the ambulance, and then going, the, all the hostages going to the roof and then being blown up. Yeah, yeah, no. definitely. Um, I also made the note of um, Ellis is the fucking worst. <laughs> yeah, he's a prick. <laughs> he is, he's the worst. I also wrote that fucking reporter. Um, and then the final but thing I have before to we say, get, get to... Sorry to, just, just to expand on. on that. I have to say, again, another example of a worse movie not doing something obvious. There's no indication that Ellis particularly fancies Holly or like is trying to seduce her and she said no and he's jealous of John. Do you know what I mean? Like he's he's a prick, but like he, there are the worst version of this movie has stuff like that in it. Doesn't he do that in the opening scene though? Doesn't he come on to her like straight away, like invite her for dinner or something? Like, isn't that one of the first things Ellis oh, yeah, does? That's true. Yeah, all right. Yeah, fair point. Forget that then. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Dan. <laughs> um, I uh, really enjoy, and the last note before I can, before we get onto the, the, the big question and the trip, um, the American accent sequence. I know we've already talked about that it kind of happened as an accident, but the tension of that sequence and the way it plays out and the interplay between those two actors is fucking glorious. Everything about it. For those who don't remember, um, Hans, who's only been talking to John over the radio for the whole movie, um, he's the leader of things, goes upstairs to check on something to do with his plan. I'm not going to get into the details, but and he comes across McLean. There's this weird pause, and then he starts doing an American accent and being like, oh, you're one of them. Don't shoot me. Oh, don't shoot me. And he pretends to be a hostage that got away. And these two get to exchange dialogue and a couple of scenes before it becomes very obvious that, that, that uh, John has figured him out. Um, he tries to shoot John, but the gun John gave him doesn't have any bullets in it, and it leads to one of the best. Another again, another iconic thing. What do you think? I'm stupid, Hans. You know, he takes the gun off him just like really casually, like he did. No bullets. You know, um, it's it's really well done. Yeah, but I just yeah. wanted to give that sequence credit because again, especially knowing it kind of came out of out of just like it being on the fly, amazing, like wonderful. Um, I think that's uh, yeah, absolutely solid. Um, so, Chris. Unless you have anything to add on any of those things that I've scattered through on my last of my notes. Christmas film or not a Christmas film? Yep. Oh, sorry. Timing. Uh, not, uh, apologies for that massive, uh, massive sneeze. Um, I think it absolutely is a Christmas film, Dad. You? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, uh, yeah, 100% agree. I'll be curious to know what your sort of logic is just because I, I there, there are multiple debates and reasons people cite for each side of this debate um i'm curious as to why you're you feel so confident it's a christmas movie what about it to you um, screams christmas movie 
so it's partly uh, that video, which I've just had on um, with subtitles in the background. I've not finished watching it, um, but the, there's a lot of stats to back up uh, that it is a video, that it is a Christmas movie, sorry. Mm-hmm. So first of all, they basically analysed the numbers and then compared to other films. Uh, so Die Hard has 19 Christmas trees in it, compared to Home Alone 7's and Miracle on 34th Street's 1. Christmas decorations, 15. Christmas decorations, 29 in Home Alone, but more than Miracle with three. Christmas carols, 12 versus Home Alone, seven um, and Miracles, four. Uh, Use of the word Christmas, 13 compared to Home Alone, seven, Miracle, eight. Uh, Other Christmas references, four compared to Home Alone's 10 and uh, Thingamajig, four. Um, also, I think the public will tell you. Um, so there's another stat from that same video. Die Hard's fandom page views go up 400% between November and December, which would suggest the, the viewing public very much feel it is a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't agree with the argument that, oh, well, there's a lot of violence. So does that inherently mean, you know, that's not very Christmassy? Well, it just means it's a violent Christmas film. Um, and I think that is made a lot worse in, in other movies um, and stuff like that. Uh, since, you know, Bad Santa and all of that sort of stuff, you you wouldn't say that's not a Christmas movie. Um, so, yeah, I think it's statistical. I think it's a feeling, Dan. I think, you know, it's it's set in December. There's Christmas themes throughout. The numbers don't lie. It's a Christmas movie, but I think I feel like you've got a you've got a like one sentence point. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you've set that up for you have a very clear, defined answer yourself. So, uh, what for you, Dan, makes it a Christmas? Movie? I, I, I wish I did. Now you've said that because now not having that is going to make me seem like a fucking oh sorry. Um, no, uh, <laughs> well, it's just the way you were like. No, I, no, you, I, have, I, have, I do have a thought about this because I've had this debate, but I was curious as to what your thoughts thoughts were first, in case you had anything sort of that could either add to it or you know i could that would track me. I, I agree with you basically it's a christmas movie it's absolutely a christmas movie by almost every metric because to me genre isn't really in a it isn't often up for debate <laughs> a lot yeah. of people go and, and i've had someone say this to me because someone at my work debates this with me and says it doesn't feel christmassy to which i would respond I feel Christmassy when I watch it. So feeling on genre is really actually almost irrelevant. It's set at Christmas. It takes place at a Christmas party. It ends on Christmas Day. It ends with the song Let It Snow on the credits. Yeah. Um, it has lines in it like, you know, ho, 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 now I have a machine, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. You know, the Christmas hat, the lights, the, the, you know, the whole movie is laced with Christmas stuff. But the other argument I would had I had with that person, or the other the other point I had was, if you see a comedy that doesn't make you laugh, you personally, you wouldn't go, well, it's not a comedy then. Yeah. If the movie still, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, you know, even if you don't personally find a comedy amusing, you'd still acknowledge its genre. As a hard fact, just because Die Hard doesn't make you, Evan, from my place of work, <laughs> feel very Christmassy, doesn't mean it's not a Christmas movie. For that exact yeah, reason. I think someone, someone could watch... It doesn't have... Home Alone, to some, probably feels more Christmassy purely because of 
the warm-hearted family altogether overtness of the mm-hmm. ending. Die Hard's genre dictates that the ending can't be overt as that. And let's be honest, for its genre, it is pretty overt. Like the couple sit happily in a, in the back of a car and kiss while Let It Snow plays. That's pretty overt for an action film. Um, mm-hmm. But like, just because the genre dictates that, you know, it's not going to be as sort of family orientated as the ending of Home Alone. Actually, if you look at Home Alone, a lot of that is violent. A lot of that is, you know what I mean? There's nothing Christmassy about nearly killing Getting people. Getting clocked around the head with a with paint can. <laughs> or a yeah, brick. exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, the numbers don't lie. And by the way, that video is something like Die Hard Christmas by the Numbers or something uh, mm-hmm. to give it reference because obviously it formed the basis of a lot of my... Uh, hold on, let me get it up exactly. It formed the basis of a lot of my arguments. Uh, so by the numbers, science proves Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It's only six minutes long. I'd recommend watching it. Because um, then they compare it. They deduct it points for showing things like cigarettes and stuff. But I, d- I don't think you need to. Because like I say, Bad Santa has a lot of that shit in. And people would still say it was a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of it is like, I know people don't like it. But a lot of it is what the public are saying. Um, and the, the, clearly people feel it's a Christmas movie. And and I love also some arguments of, are like Iron Man 3 isn't a Christmas movie, even though it's set at Christmas. To be honest with you, if someone was to say to me Iron Man 3 was a Christmas movie, I wouldn't disagree. I'd be like, yeah, fair enough. If you were, I bet if you said to most people, pick a Marvel movie to watch at Christmas, obviously Hawkeye's coming. Hawkeye will be the answer in the future. But... I'd watch Iron Man 3. Like, feels mm-hmm. fairly Christmassy to me. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Die Hard, if, if, if Iron Man closed. 3... If Iron Man 3... Deal I'm going to say this people. now, Dan. I'm going yeah. to I'm gonna say this and be bold. If Iron Man 3 had yeah. been released at Christmas, people would consider it a Christmas movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember there being because Christmas then, at all in Iron Man three, but so I feel very dumb in this conversation. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a shame. It's a shame. Black movies, there's, there's Christmas, you littered know, Christmas throughout. trees yeah, and yeah. shit <laughs> littered throughout. But like, if if because then people would, as you said, you can't you can't control the nostalgia. If some people, because also Die Hard is accessible all year round. You could watch Die Hard at any point in the year in a way that perhaps Jingle All the Way or the Santa well, Claus would feel a bit weird watching it yeah, in the summer. Yeah, you could to a certain degree, but I still but, think you'd go, God, it's very Christmassy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. I think Die Hard but has a I lot think... more Christmas in it than people remember until they sit and watch it. I think, you know, you remember all the, yeah. you know, him running around in a vest shooting things, it's all very grey and there's explosions everywhere. But actually, you watch the movie, there's an there's a surprising amount of references to music from lights and visuals that reference Christmas. It's it's surprising actually how much of it is Christmas. I mean the whole thing is starts at a Christmas party. So Yeah, no, yeah, no, that's fair. Um but I think uh Yeah, here you go. So Iron Man three on setting the film around Christmas, Black said, I think there's a sense of if you're doing something on an interesting scale that involves an entire universe of characters one way to unite them is to have them all undergo a common experience. There's something at Christmas that unites everybody and already sets a stage within the stage that wherever you are, you're experiencing this world together. Um, that presumably is his answer for why he sets most of his films at Christmas. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, if people had that nostalgia, and I think it does, you know, maybe that's, like you say, you feel 
Christmassy when watching it because uh, partly because you watch it every year at Christmas. Um, yes. Same as us. So, yeah. But I, so many people, that wouldn't be a valid argument. We couldn't sit here and go, well, we watch it at Christmas, so it feels like a Christmas movie. The reason that makes that a valid argument is we are not alone. <laughs> like, so many people do that, as proven by the 400 pay, 400% increase in views on the fandom page at Christmas. That Yeah, it's definitely the people have spoken. It's a Christmas movie. Agreed. Agreed. Um, right, should we, should, we, uh, should we give you some trivia? Let's, let's trim it up! I don't, I don't know why I've started saying that every week, but apparently that's the thing I do now. Yeah, same with Trivet Up. I'm going to give you some trivia. Right. Um, so, yeah, let's br- briefly talk about this. So a lot of people don't realise this, but Die Hard's based on a novel um, called Nothing Lasts Forever um, by Roderick Thorpe. I mean, if, that is an author name if I've ever heard one. If someone says to me, Roderick Thorpe, what does he do as a job? I'm like, ah, that is a writer through and through. <laughs> Roderick Thorpe. <laughs> I don't know why. Anyway, um, Clint Eastwood actually owned the rights to the novel and was going to star in the film in the 80s. Um, during that time, there were several attempts at adapting the the, the, the the novel, including Eastwood, Bronson, Burt Reynolds, Paul Newman. These were all people that were considered... Um, at one point, uh, Eastwood almost considered directing it also. Um, at the end... Um, John McTiernan sort of the, uh, was able to take it down from a script. I think so. There were two writers on this movie, the, the, this version of the movie, the one we actually got. Um, let's have a quick look. I forget their names off the top of my head, but they're in here somewhere, Chris, in my notes. Uh, Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. Um, and I feel like, from what I can tell, Stephen E. D'Souza wrote the original draft, and it was Jeb Stewart that worked on it as it went. Have I got it the right way around? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember names. Yeah, but I think so. You're right. Um, but the funny thing about all this, which is, is that the book "Nothing Lasts Forever" originally served as a basis for a movie and film in like the late '60s with Frank Frank Sinatra, um, because he'd done. Um, so that book is a sequel. <laughs> To a book called The Detective, I think. Yeah. So, so basically, strictly speaking, the... they had to offer the sequel based on an old contract to Frank Sinatra first. Yeah. So the the the, the detective was released, adapted into a film with Frank Sinatra, a big success. The Frank Sinatra went to the or you know he got his people whatever went to the author and said you need to write a sequel. The author went all right, then I'll write another book. Didn't really make it a sequel to The Detective and took years writing it, um, which meant by the time it kind of looped back round, Sinatra was like, nah, I'm too old to be running around fighting terrorists or whatever. Yeah, yeah. although, I've, looking at it here, the, 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 the book, to be fair, isn't as crazy different to the film as, as I thought. So it was a, a much older Leland. The character was called Joe Leland. Um, and he was visiting his daughter... Um, Steffi Leland Gennaro, who worked for a Klaxon Oil Company. Uh, Takagi was the VP of Sales, although he was called Rivers. But Harry Ellis, Al Powell, Dwayne Robinson were all exactly the same. Uh, the FBI don't get involved. Um, Hans Gruber was originally Anton Little Tony Gruber, um, and Hans was 
the name of Carl's brother. Um, the purpose of the terrorist takeover was to allow West German radical group to undercover illegal arms shipment shipment Claxon was making to a Chilean dictatorship. But so that part's different. But the idea of them being in that building and locking it down for those reasons, like it's all very similar. And in the end scene, which is at sort of Christmas morning, um, Anton Gruber falls out the window and catches his finger on Gennaro's uh, Steffi Gennaro's watch. Um, but in this case, I, I he... believe she dies. I believe. Well, the yeah. Dies. So in the original yeah. book, he pulls her out the window, and they both die. Um, that's obviously changed here. But like hearing that, I was like, wow, there is actually a lot of this book in this movie. <laughs> like I always assumed that by the time it reached this, because it went through so many, you know, functions from the 60s as a sequel to The Detective through to, you know, Bruce Willis putting on the vest. Like that, I always assumed that by the time it got to being Die Hard, it was nothing of the sort. You know what I mean? It was just like a completely different thing that existed. Yeah, I think... But that's all I quite think, th- surprisingly similar. Yeah, I think the beats are there. And then, so the beats are the same. The first writer added the... Because he had a fight with his wife. And as he was driving... Oh, that's my very next he... piece of trivia. That, uh, oh, so, sorry. yeah, okay. Jeff Stewart was, was having difficulty writing the screenplay. Um, until he had a near-death experience while driving to Los Angeles after after a fight with his wife. He was driving behind a truck carrying refrigerators. One of the fridge boxes fell out of the truck. Lucky for him, the box was empty, but he realised that if he died, he wouldn't have been able to apologise to his wife, and this inspired him to give clearer motivations to John McClane and Holly's characters. Um, they wanted to reunite with each other after having a fight. So it looks like then, by based on that piece of trivia, that it was Jeb Stewart wrote the first draft yeah and then the guy that helped john mctin and the director add comedy and worked on it while it was shooting was steven e de souza so i think the the so book it the wrong way around earlier. the book created the general kind of structure and the big sort of beats mm-hmm. the the first guy added the heart and the the link to the wife and changed the mm-hmm. bits that are changed and then the third guy Stephen added the comedy. Although that that probably is is dumbing down what he did a little bit, considering well, he they only had thirty five pages when starting. So he must have written or rewritten an yeah. awful lot of it. Well, but not he just was that, brought on to add the comedy. He was also responsible. So because Bruce Willis was kind of like exhausted from his schedule because he was also shooting Moonlighting at the time, he did a sort of Michael J. Fox on this movie where he was doing a TV show and a movie. Um, it forced D'Souza to beef up the roles of all the other characters. He wasn't just adding comedy. Mm. He was making Al Powell, Ellis, and Argyle get a lot more screen time. Um, and that was all happening as filming was beginning. Um, so, yeah, he did do, He did clearly contribute, uh, contri- contribute? contribute a huge amount um, to the final script, I think. It's, uh, yeah, you're right. I think Roderick Thorpe, obviously, novel by... Um, was the the general narrative thrust of the film. Jeb Stewart does the initial draft, gives it a bit of heart, and then Stephen E. D'Souza is the one who readjusts it to have more comedy and give all the other characters presumably stuff to do, which is probably why so many of the characters in this movie have setups and payoffs, sort of mini arcs of their own. Um, but mm. it all came together despite it feeling quite that all feeling quite muddled and confused. It all came together really well, and it's amazing how good this film is, considering that's its backstory. Um, so in, to give more details Completely. of that, 
Um, originally, McTiernan actually turned the script down multiple times. He felt the script he'd been given was a nasty piece of work. Um, and actually, when that's the reason when he finally took it on, he brought under Souza to give it the lighter edge. Um, um, in the original novel and the first version of the script, so presumably the Jeb Stewart version of the script, it took place across three days. Um, but when McTiernan came on to the project, he was sort of inspired to have it take place over a single night by Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I guess he'd either just read or was just very familiar with. <laughs> very strange. <laughs> so, but I think ultimately so actually a smart choice, to be honest. Yeah, oh yeah, I don't disagree with the choice, but it's just like, yeah, just such a I, such a large... Do you know what I mean? That's like, it's yeah. just, I can't imagine anyone going... Yeah, so I was just thinking about Hamlet, and I was like, yeah, let's have a father-son. <laughs> like, do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, I tried to find, because I assume that's com- that that's the sort of trivia that smacks of he said something in an interview or on a commentary once to that effect, and it's become yeah. trivia, because it feels like he's sort of, you know, post-release gone, oh, yeah, that was my idea, I was kind of inspired by it. Um, I tried to find the exact quote to find how he phrased it because yeah, it is a bit phrased weird there. Like like he what he just what he just he just gone and seen a great production of Twelfth Night when ah I shall fix Die Hard by making it one day. It feels very one to one, and I don't think it was probably that simple. Um, mm. But yeah, so let's we can talk briefly about alternate casting as always. Um, several people: Richard Gere, Sylvester Stallone, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Robert De Niro, Don Johnson, Richard Dean Anderson, uh, Michael Madsen um, were all considered. Um, but the, the the problem was t- McTiernan had just worked with Schwarzenegger on Predator, and he was, while Schwarzenegger was briefly considered for the role, McTiernan kind of felt that McLean needed to be more of an average guy um, who didn't really want to be in the situation, but was kind of had hero. He- had had to become the hero because of his circumstances, wasn't just naturally a hero when he stepped into the situation. And that is actually what led them to, again, presumably McTiernan and D'Souza bringing more to the script, this notion of, of John McClane being more of an everyman, and that's what led them ultimately to um, Bruce Willis, who at the time was a, like a sitcom actor um, and musician, sort of singer. The, the, the Return of the Bruno, Chris. Look it up. It's horrendous. <laughs> Um, and very cheesy um, so yeah that's how they ended up there um, and I think Bruce is obviously the right choice there are some interesting names in that list but I don't I don't want to see any of those versions. normally I go oh that would have been interesting no. but I don't think I, I, the Arnold Schwarzenegger version doesn't interest me the Mel Gibson version doesn't interest me Stallone Gear De Niro all of maybe, those names are so maybe I'd see those... the De Niro version I'd maybe see the De Niro version but I think the problem is all of those names are so in themselves, uh, for either good reasons or bad, in the case of some, like, iconic, that you kind of... The reason I think you go... The reason we usually go, oh, take me to the, you know, Rick and Morty uh, world where that's a thing. I want to see that. But that's because it's essentially us going, God, I wonder what that looks like. We pretty much know what all of those names in Die Hard looks like. Do you know right. what I mean? I don't need to see the Schwarzenegger does John McClane because right, I know we, we what know that what that is, is. and it's worse. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> and not even in an entertaining way, in a really predictable, boring way. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. Um, another interesting alternate casting, and there's not many other alternate castings for Hans Gruber. It seems they settled on Rickman pretty quickly. Um, but they did think about Sam Neill. And I must admit, that is interesting. I love Alan Rickman in this movie. One of his best performances. I think he's staggeringly good in this film. And he really gives it his all, even though it feels like... He wasn't too sure. He wanted like so he nearly passed on the role because it was it was because he, he didn't want to he, he wanted to be very careful about choosing his very first film role. He'd done a lot of TV and stage work, and he was an actor. You know, he just arrived in Hollywood and was basically two days in when they read this script and was appalled at the idea of having his first role being a villain in an action movie. Um, so to a degree, um, you know he. He could have easily phoned this in because he wasn't sure about doing it. I think he was concerned about being typecast as well. Um, and unfortunately, I suppose it, in the end, he was kind of right because for many years he was mostly offered to play villains. <laughs> uh, he, got, he got kind of typecast that way. So he wasn't wrong to suspect that might happen. But he, yeah. considering that that's the report on his how he felt about the script when he first read it, he does not... None of that shows in his performance. That man gives like 110% to every moment in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, completely. It's uh, yeah. it's it's stunning. It's one of the best villainous performances. You know, it's yeah. iconic for a reason. Agreed. Um, so but, some alternate uh, casting for Holly Janera McLean. Um, there's some good names in here. Um, I like I like who we got. Um, but I I would have probably seen most of these versions because uh, I I like a lot of these actresses. Linda Hamilton. For the Terminator franchise, we know she can play like a sort of strong female role. Gina Davis, who we've now seen, we, who's now come up on this podcast multiple times. She was obviously uh, the lead, one of the leads in Quick Change, but also Beetlejuice. Um, she, she would have been great in this role. Michelle Pfeiffer was considered. Jamie Lee Curtis was considered. Carrie Fisher was considered. Kirsty Alley was considered, and uh, Kelly McGillis. I, I'm still glad that we, that, you know, that we got the version we got. But I, I definitely think, you know, as good as uh, as good as Bonnie Bedelia is in this movie, I think they also there's a good chance that any of those actresses could have brought, you know, uh, maybe not something similar, but could have I think also could have handled the role quite well. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that's a fair comment. Because I because I feel like I think Bruce it's Willis less bring something really specific to John McClane you're not getting from any of those other actors. Whereas I feel like the other actresses on on the you know in the lineup were more better suited to the role that we got. Does that make sense? So it feels like with 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 McLean, they were like, we need action star Stallone, Schwarzenegger, like all the predictable action star names of the day, you know. But what they were doing with that was actually something quite different and quite interesting because they went for this kind of like everyman version of the character. So you take Bruce Willis out of this, the character doesn't really work, right? But with the Holly character, it's clear that they knew early on what they wanted. Uh, you know, um this character that's very sharp and strong and like capable and they therefore in the alternate castings have a lot of actresses I know could do that really well. <laughs> so, you know, like I like the way it played out, but I think any of those actresses would have been able to do this well, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, because the, the alternates were much more suited to what they ended up doing. Um, the trivia here says, and I I put this one in verbatim because I don't necessarily trust the way this is phrased. This is another one that I feel like has come from an interview, and I've got questions about. But the character of John McClane had not been fully realized until halfway through production, 
when Bruce Willis and John McTiernan decided he was a man who did not like himself very much, but was just doing the best he could in a bad situation. Um. Yeah, I, I, I have questions. I <laughs> yeah, I feel like... Mm, I feel like it's way too consistent for that to be true. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the reason I included it is because this, you know, a lot of this trivia is really just supporting the point that much of this was done on the fly. You know, the script was being changed as they were going, all that stuff. And that idea that they kind of figured out the character a bit better halfway through shooting does make a certain amount of sense, I guess. But like also, yeah, it's it, the, what did they shoot first? Just the action scenes? Like, it's it's very strange, the idea that they would only work that out halfway through and that it would still feel as consistent as it does. Yeah. Completely. Like, but it's uh, also it possible, be, and- it's also possible based on the trivia later where, um, in fact, it might be here. Um, I think Bruce Willis got... Oh no, it wasn't that he was injured. Oh, yes, the trivia was already done. That Bruce Willis was doing his other shoot at the time. So, like, maybe they just didn't have him for a lot of the early portions of the shoot. I don't know. It's unclear. Really unclear. Maybe, but then that makes it that makes it less that makes it more redundant. Do you know what I mean? We didn't properly define a character. We didn't really start working with till later. Like, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. It um... makes the trivia not even a trivia then at that point. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. It's, yeah. I, I put it in there because it sort of backs up the point that certain chunks of this movie were sort of done on the fly. But I do question that one. Um, another scene that was reportedly improvised, as several of the scenes reportedly were, was obviously the McLean hands scene. Several moments in that were sort of like they they didn't do much rehearsal. They very much left it loose so that they could have the two bounce off each other with like a vague direction for the scene. Um, it's obviously the, it's clear the writers were on set, so I don't know if improvised maybe even is the right word for what they did. But it does definitely seem like the whole sequence is made, uh, you know, on the fly. Um, the scene also led to... The, the, the way the scene happened on the fly had the moment where they came up with... The, they talked about the barefoot thing, which we haven't even talked about yet. Um, and apparently, because of they got that scene in, they allow, that allowed them to add the shoot the glass moment later on. Um, so, yeah. Um, I've lost track of what even this is anymore as trivia. This is a very confusingly written piece of trivia. <laughs> well, the the but 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 we haven't talked about the genius of the barefoot thing, which is again something that's really interwoven into mm-hmm. the movie and proves really relevant. Um, you do kind of think it gets to a point where like you've killed enough bad guys to probably check more than the first pair of shoes, but then again, maybe he does that off screen. Um. But yeah, it's uh, it's a fantastic idea, and just again, you just really what a clever idea because you know the movie could exist without that, but just makes you wince and feel his pain and feel the hardship he's going through that bit more mm-hmm. because he's barefoot. So it's very clever. Yeah, hundred percent agreed. Um, I'll blast through the last of these because I'm realizing we're, we're approaching the two hour mark, and that is too long. <laughs> um, very quickly, so there, there's, a, there's a bunch more of these. Uh, so the film's ending had not been finalized when the filming began. Uh, one result is that the truck depicted as transporting the terrorists to the building was too small to ha- house an ambulance that was later revealed to be inside it. Um, 
so they had to retrofit that, and that's why it's such a weird-looking ambulance. I think it's just a, like a really small van painted like an ambulance rather than an actual one, because a real one wouldn't fit in mm. it. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that from the fact, and that again all leans into this notion of this movie was very much created on the fly. Um, so it had been often said that Bruce Willis's lines during the scene where he pulls the glass out of his feet were ad-libbed. Um, and it was said that upon learning this, Terry Gilliam cast Willis as the lead in 12 Monkeys. However, when comparing the original script, um, it appears that Willis only veered slightly from what was originally written in that particular scene. So the, the, the myth around him ad-libbing most of that scene is uh, exaggerated, um, it seems. Um, so Terry Gilliam shouldn't have hired... Bruce Willis, <laughs> Top Monkeys, is See, what I'm saying. That's what that's what that triv is. <laughs> Terry Gilligan yeah. should have yeah. hired Bruce. Yeah. Correct. He did it. He, he look. He hired him based on a lie, Chris. <laughs> Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, you like Twelve Monkeys? This, monkeys, this podcast at some the, point. I love that movie. Yeah, I was going to say the end result was fine, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, I love that fucking movie. It's one of my favorites. That's an absolute masterpiece. Um, Bruce Bullitt Willis was mainly known for playing comedic roles on Moonlighting at the time. So when the first trailers for Die Hard appear in cinemas, presenting him as an action hero, audiences did indeed laugh thinking it must be a comedy, and for a brief time, they even removed Willis's face from the posters to present prevent expectations of it being a comedy, hence the use of the image of, uh, of Nakatomi Plaza sort of in the poster. Uh, once the film came out and got started to build a positive response, um, they started issuing posters with Willis's face added back in. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting situation they were in. <laughs> Um, yeah speak- definitely uh, speaking of that building as I mentioned it's actually the headquarters of 20th Century Fox and several other companies um, the company actually had to charge themselves rent for using the the building um, <laughs> such a weird that. circumstance awesome. I think I'm, I'm assuming there was some legal reason they had to do that rather than just let themselves use it but it's kind of hilarious to imagine <laughs> you know, just a lawyer in a room signing a contract and then going around to the other side of the table and signing the contract again <laughs> We agree for you to yeah. use us uh, to, for our offices for your for your movie motion picture. And he goes around the other side. He's like, "Oh, thank you, very good. I agree to these terms also." <laughs> they <laughs> they went to the trouble of sending themselves the money. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I really hope that's how. Well, like I say, in my head, that's what happened now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, the costume department apparently had seventeen undershirts in various stages of ed- ed- degradation on hand for Bruce Willis. I love that. That's trivia. I just love that. That's trivia. But that um, is trivia. Do you know what I mean? That is more justified in this section than some stuff has been in the past. Yeah, <laughs> that's great trivia. Um, the line "hands, Bubby" was ad-libbed, which is uh, why hands, uh, Alan Rickman's quizzical reaction feels so genuine. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you got another piece of triv about uh, Rickman's genuine reactions? Yes, I have. I don't want to spoil it. It's, yeah, it's coming. Cool, cool. No, but hands, hands. Hans Bubby is an excellent line. <laughs> yeah, because he he leaves just the right amount of awkward pause. Hans Bubby, <laughs> it's so good. It's really well done. That guy does a great job. Um, the scene the scene where John McClane falls down the shaft was actually a mistake by the stuntman. The stuntman was supposed to grab the very first vent on the other side. That was what was planned, but he slipped and continued to fall. The shot was used anyway, and they edited it together with one where you can see McLean grabbing the next vent down under that because they thought it gave it like a like a genuine like he made a mistake, but then he can't, he sort of corrects it sort of thing, which I think does give the scene a lot of tension. So, um, yeah, that trivia is in here twice for some reason. 
Why not? Um, only a Why couple not? of the actors who played German terrorists were actually German, um, and only one or two could actually speak German as well, and it was broken at that. Um, the actors were cast mainly for their menacing appearances rather than their nationality. Uh, nine of the twelve were over six feet tall. <laughs> One of them, I'll send you the screenshot after, but one of them, Dan, really looks like Neil Morrissey. The Is that British. right? That's yeah, so funny. I'll, let me, I'll send you, I was going to prepare it. I'll see if I can prepare it now quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll carry on with the true volume search. Yeah. Um, ironically, can, with, uh... um, ironically, with that in mind, um, you know, Bruce Willis sneered at the idea of being cast as the all-American hero by the, the the you know in this movie by by like german terrorists because actually he's more german than most of the people playing the villains alan rickman being english um alexander gudnov was russian uh bruce willis himself was actually born in west germany in 1955 to an american father and german mother so bruce willis is the most german member of the cast Or certainly one of, anyway. Um, obviously, I don't have the backgrounds of the entire cast here, but yeah. Um, the police dispatcher tells Sergeant Powell to investigate Nakatomi Building. He tells him it's a Code 2. If you look this up, it's actually an uh, urgent incident where sirens are not to be used, is what Code 2 stands for. So, And that's what he does. He approaches without his sirens. Um, for the shot where Hans Gruber falls, we thought well, Chris already hinted that Alan Rickman was... Mm was surprised a few times by uh, things in this movie. Shooting Alan Rickman falling um, from this 21-foot-high model to get the the facial reaction as he slowly plummeted. Um, He was holding on to a stuntman and was going to fall into an airbag, but to get the right reaction, they told him they were going to count to three and drop him, but they actually dropped him on two. (laughs) Which is very mean, and exactly why his face looks like it does. (laughs) But yeah, mean, but amazing. And and absolutely works, you know. Um, it really, it really is. Uh, and and I understand. I read another piece of trivia where they had to basically edit around any time the Hans Gruber character fires a gun because apparently Alan Rickman flinched every single time he fired a gun on set, and they could not get a take where he didn't. So in the end, they had to uh, use editing to make sure, like they cut away every time he pulls a trigger, basically in the movie. Well, I think he he wasn't used to it then because there's all in the movies that made us episode they talk about um how they had real trouble making him hold the gun straight like apparently yep. he was holding the gun in like with a really limp hand um so yeah they so clearly maybe he just wasn't that used to guns yeah, no, yeah, again being a theater actor i imagine yeah gunplay probably not very common um for him yeah, so yeah completely. really interesting um so this is interesting. When John runs through the glass shards in his bare feet after hands and the men shoot out the windows, Bruce Willis is actually wearing special rubber shoes that are designed to look like his own feet. The uh, 1988 equivalent of wearing a mask for COVID, but with your own face printed on it, I guess. <laughs> um, apparently, <laughs> if you look closely at his, his feet, they do appear quite unnaturally large in some of the crucial sort of barefoot scenes because he's wearing this stuff. I think that's really interesting um, and a good good way to edit, you know, get around it and keep the actor safe and comfortable. Thumbs up. Yeah. Um, this might be one of the single greatest pieces of trivia we've ever had, Chris. In the edited for TV version of this movie, John McClane's famous line, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, was changed to, and I swear this is true, I, I triple-checked this. I, can't, I, I couldn't find the clip, but I, to be fair, I mostly spent my time verifying it was true before I said it. But it was changed to yippee-ki-yay, melon farmer. <laughs> Which is fantastic. 
<laughs> Yippee-ki-yay, Melon uh, Farmer. That is brilliant. I want to hear that version. I think there is a compilation on YouTube of all the edits, but you, you never know if some, if some are fake or whatever. Or Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, so I've searched it in YouTube to see if I can find it. And there's, there's, a, there's a compilation of ridiculously edited for TV movie lines. And then there's a clip from an episode of the Goldbergs called Yippee-ki-yay, Melon Farmer, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense. Oh, so it, must, it must definitely be a thing then. Yeah, I, well, I, I found out it was true, or I wouldn't have repeated it, but I couldn't find the actual audio of him saying that. So it was kind of like, yeah, yeah. Um, that's brilliant. I love that so much. Um, apparently, Twentieth um, Century Fox, the production company behind the film, formally described it as a Christmas movie um, years later, stating that it is the greatest of Christmas stories ever told. In a new trailer to mark the thirtieth anniversary of the film's release. We are clarifying that it is indeed a Christmas movie, thus ending the debate over the movie's Christmas status. So the studio also did dub it a Christmas movie. Did you find the picture, Chris? Yes, I'm just about to send it to you now. So, so everyone, Chris has, has indicated that one of the one of the uh, terrorists in the movie resembles British character actor Neil Morrissey. Who is a who is a very beloved and very popular in this country? If you're not familiar with his work, do look him up. He's a very good actor. He's on a sitcom called Men Behaving Badly, and he had a great little role as well in a in popular British drama, Line of Duty. Now, has Chris misled me, or am I about to see the way that last week I found Jason Alexander, or the voice of at least in uh, the 1940s film It's a Wonderful Life? Has Chris identified Neil Morrissey in a 1988 film? Called Die Hard. I'm waiting for it to see. If it, is it, have you sent it? Is it coming? Uh, just about to. Oh, he's just sent it. I'm very excited. Is he right or is he wrong, guys? I don't know. Oh, it's tense. I can feel the tension. I can. I feel. Can you feel that tension? Just it's building anticipation. Oh, Chris has just gone online on WhatsApp from my side. Oh no, now it's last scene today at one forty, which is the time now. So he's he's bailed. It's coming. Oh, here it is. Let's have a look. Yeah, he does look a fair bit like Neil Morrissey. It's partly the hair. Um... But yeah, yeah. Did you did you put those two pictures together, head. or has someone else observed this, and that's why that picture exists? No, I put the photos together, did I? Yeah. But even wow. I, I almost regret putting the photos together because that. I think just see the guy from Die Hard. I think you could definitely see Neil Morrissey. Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm, I'm giving Chris a pass, guys. He's right. The guy does. Thank you. The guy does look like Neil Morrissey. Can confirm. I appreciate that. Um, we'll put the picture up on Twitter maybe when this goes out, if I remember. It'll be Christmas Day, so maybe not. Um, cool. So <laughs> that's all the Die Hard things. Do you have anything else to say on Die Hard? It's a great movie. We love it. No, yeah, great movie. Love it. I'd like I say, I, I'd be, te- I'd honestly be tempted. I think I can't deny if someone says favorite film, I'd be tempted to name Die Hard because 
nothing gives me the same experience of just pure, like, literally, fucking Die Hard! Yeah! yeah like, it, it, I'm so, so happy watching Die Hard. It's so easy to put this movie on thinking you're going to watch it more casually and get sucked right in. And that is a powerful thing. Yeah, because that's, that's one thing we've not talked about. The tension really works. The whole movie mm-hmm. feels incredibly tense and engaging. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's brilliant. It's Die Hard. It's fucking, fucking Die Hard, everyone. Get over it. And I, I'm, I'm impressed with us, Dan, because this review could have easily been that. Just us going, it's fucking Die Hard. I'm yeah. impressed we've managed to get some sense out of this review. Go us. Well, we'll leave that to the, the listeners to determine. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. So, with that in mind, Chris, now, there's a gap now. It's going to be a little while till we come back. We've got... Mm. Uh, uh, Analyzing Avatar is going to be returning as of the 11th of January. Um, if you're wondering why there's a bit of a gap there, it's because we bumped up the Matrix movies uh, to both get them in before Matrix 4 releases, but also to mean that we could line the Christmas movies up with Christmas. Because the original schedule yeah. had one of the Christmas movies being reviewed in early January, which didn't feel right. So there's going to be a slight gap now um, before we come back. But it is the original date we you know, mentioned at the end of the last Analyzing Avatar. So Avatar, Analyzing Avatar, we're coming back on the 11th of January for the next episode of that. The first episode of Book 3, Fire. It's very exciting. And then Rewind Reviews itself comes back in... Uh, June. June the 7th, we're back for the Series 5 of this. Now, Chris is probably a bit, I imagine, slightly trepidatious about what I'm about to do because we created a precedent of choosing a bad movie for the first one. We we did say that should stop. Correct. So part of me thinks you're going to go the other way and choose a movie that that is definitely good. You are correct. Yeah. I we so that's what I would do in this scenario. If I was yeah. in your position, Dan, I'd I, do exactly the same thing. Well, because we we both suffered at the hands of all about Steve, and I don't think either of us want a repeat yeah. of that. You know, yeah. and I, and I don't want people to think I'm being flippant about it. I really do mean suffered. We <laughs> we watched all about Steve without a doubt. Um, so as a result, Chris. I'm choosing a movie I know categorically is a good movie. Maybe one of my favourite movies of all time. It's time, Chris. It's time, Chris, for us to finally sit down and watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, nice. Cool. Very excited about doing this one. I don't believe you're particularly familiar with the movie. No, I think it it was one of the can't believe you've not seen it movies and i was definitely bought it and i think the same friend made me sit down and watch it but i'm not a hundred percent sure on that I wow the fact it. you don't remember if you've seen it or not says a lot <laughs> it suggests i haven't seen it <laughs> yeah i actually love this movie so much um i went to a secret cinema special screening of Roger Rabbit, where they had people dressed as the characters running around. They did it in like an old sort of like 
I'll, I'll, actually, I'll talk about it on, when we get there because it's it, it was a fun experience. Yeah. It'd be worth talking about. But they did some really cool stuff related to the film. But I could say that now, but it wouldn't mean anything to you, Chris, having not really remembered the film. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll avoid doing that thing we always do, which is repeating Say stuff we should say. Yeah, yeah, twice. Yeah. But yeah, um, one of my all-time favourite movies. Um, honestly, when I was a kid, if you'd asked me my favourite movie pre-Star Wars, it was it was Back to the Future, but sometimes this. <laughs> Like this was up there yeah. in that region for me, um, and still I think to this day holds up as an absolute masterpiece. So um, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Very excited to do that one. Very excited to introduce you to that one, um, or maybe not, depending yeah. on whether when you start watching it, you yeah. go, oh yeah, I've seen this one, <laughs> which you might do. Um, I'm excited as well, and I'm I'm also excited to get back into uh, Avatar too. Yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, for anyone who's been following along with analysing Avatar, yeah, we're, we're, we're coming back in January and I'm, I'm really excited to get through the the third and sort of final season of the original run um, with Chris and, and that's going to... Yeah, I think that's a, that's going to be a good good fun time. I'm yeah. very yeah, excited. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how we're going to do the, the finales though because it's, it's a four-episode finale and I don't know, do we watch them and review them together and split it into episodes? We haven't figured it out yet, but we'll do something. Yeah, we'll work that out. We'll work that out of the time. time. Um, yeah. But yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and we will uh, see you guys then. Obviously, you can get us in all the usual places. So we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash nothing but static. You can give us as little as $1 a month. It gives you one week early access to all of this stuff. Um, you can get to it uh, prior to its wide release. Obviously, you can support us in non-financial ways by simply just liking and subscribing and reviewing all of the things. So all of the platforms this is on, if you interact with it in some way, that helps us. And it's free. Um, you can also tell a friend. Say to a friend, hey, do you like the movie Die Hard? Their answer is inevitably going to be yes. And you can say, well, here's a podcast about it. See how easy that and is? If, if their answer is no, stop being friends with them. Correct. That is the correct answer. Done. Agreed. That easy, guys. Mm-hmm. Go for so, it. Tell a friend to listen to this podcast. Why not? Or our other podcast, Nothing But Static, which you can also get in all the usual places like iTunes and Spotify and you know, all, all all that good stuff. Um, I'm trying to think. Amazon, Google, whatever it is, Google Play Store that they keep re- rebranding, whatever it's called now. Um, yeah, all of those places you can hear our podcasts. The Nothing But Static podcast is one where we talk about television in an episode we've yet to record but are about to this week, um, So which will already be out by the time you hear this in December. We're reviewing things like... Um, what are we reviewing? God, my brain just... Okay, The Shrink Next Door, uh, Cowboy D- Bebop, Dope Sick and Dope and Sick. Cowboy yes. Bebop. Yes, very excited to talk about all of those things with Chris. So you can listen to our discussion on that right now over on all of those various around, platforms. Around this time, we do a... Well, probably be... I can't remember. No, I think the plan is in a couple of days from the point you're listening to this, we're releasing an episode where we talk about the Christmas TV you could watch and I suspect review Hawkeye. So listen out for that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris is going to find some of the weirdest shit from the... Uh, the British TV schedule has blown my mind by telling me they're doing like an eight-part drama on a fucking Christmas bin or something weird like that. British TV gets weird at Christmas, and Chris always finds the weirdest shit in the TV guide and tells me about it. It's always good fun. Um, so yeah, that episode will be out very, very shortly from when when you hear this, and then there'll be an episode in January where we're going to review the season two of Lost. You can hear our season one of Lost episode right now. Also, there you go. That's things. Yeah. There things you, you can check out if it's you enjoyed time. this. Um, good times. 
cool. So yeah, that's that's everything. I, 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 this is that weird bit where normally I just go from all the spiel I, at the end into the end. Well, in that case, Dan, let me take this from you because I know what you're saying, but it's awkward because I do it. So let me say, I've been Chris Billingham. I've been Dan Doing. And this review has been Rewound. Very, very well done, Chris. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Yeah. I respect and appreciate all that you do. Cheers, man. We've got into a habit now of doing add-ons for this, and we have nothing to say. <laughs> Wait, let's, let's do, you make think, this... do you think that we had something to say for the last two hours? No, but like, <laughs> the nothing but static add-ons are a stretch, and now we've started doing them for this as well. Um, and they're just... Yeah. I'm going to pee. See you later. <laughs> and on that optimistic note, hope you have yeah, a good Christmas. Really, really, really fizzled <laughs> had a good out at Christmas. the end. Went from... Went from die hard to I'm going to pee. No, but yeah, happy Christmas. Thank you for listening. Uh, Go watch die hard. Go watch die hard. (laughs) Bye.